0: Congratulations! You've found the time to absorb yet another episode of the March Mad Men podcast. This season is devoted to sussing out which haunted house film should be lauded as the gold standard among ghost movies. Hopefully, you've been with us from the beginning as we whittled 32 flicks down to four, but if not, feel free to haunt the archives and catch up. Tonight, we've got Argentina's modern classic, terrified on the slab and ready for dissection after that it's lake mungo and oculus to round out the fearsome four we did the shining last time around so when all these autopsies are done we'll announce the championship pairing and determine our winner on a megapod super show it's getting pretty goddamn exciting at this point friends and neighbors so let's get right to it as always, your ghost hosts are myself, John Evans, screenwriter Vikram Wheat the Third, and Sir Richard Eckersley, the Emmy-nominated television producer, mini-film fest organizer, non-pareal, and someone who would skip Session 9 in The Shining to curl up with Hausu and let's scare Jessica to death. How you doing this fine <coughs> evening, Rich? That's a pretty
1: apt description, you know. I was going to say I'm doing I'm doing great because uh, any excuse to get together with friends and do something other than talk about the fucking shining is always a good time.
0: <laughs> the shining is behind you, Rich and Vic. Uh, how are you tonight, buddy?
2: I'm doing uh, I'm doing pretty well. John, I do want to remind people, this is but the first step in a, a long journey to find not just the greatest haunted house film, but the greatest horror film ever made. So if you're digging this, stay tuned because we're gonna do future seasons on different subgenres and uh I think we're gonna we're gonna find some pretty interesting stuff. This has been a hell of a trip thus far.
0: God, it really has been fascinating to do such a deep dive into one thing, you know, in this case haunted house movies. But, uh, yeah, as you said, Vic, there's a whole universe of horror out there, and uh, it's it's pretty exhilarating, and we could be doing this until the day we die. I don't know, like that that could literally happen.
2: I will say too, just on the the subject of haunted house movies i I did finally, as uh our our faithful listeners have noted, I finally moved into this very old house in the middle of nowhere, except that it's on this kind of major highway. And had my own <clears throat> terrifying experience, if you will, in that my dog, who is, who is but a pup, less than a year old, and who has never expressed almost any interest in the outside world. We've never had any issues with him, like getting out or running away. Upon moving into this house, immediately got out and ran into the middle of a major highway. Uh, and I was out there stopping traffic and, and screaming at the dog. And had it not been for some roadkill plastered to the pavement in the middle of the road, which eventually got his attention enough that I was able to grab him, he might have been uh, clobbered by a a Mack truck like Gage in Pet Cemetery. So uh,
0: so luckily the, the last dog to have tried this was, was lying there in a puddle on the road.
2: So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly so Lord, it everything worked out for the best but oh man I had forgotten what that that true existential terror of oh my god my dog is is not just accidentally going to get hit by a car but actively trying to find a car to hit him
0: <laughs> it's like I will not live in this house
2: <laughs> it was like the happening with
0: a dog <laughs> you can here another day <laughs> damn all right, well, hopefully that's just the first of uh, many stories about this new house, but um, let's keep them of a, a ghost variety and, um, you know, stay away from the animal trauma. Never, John. <laughs> this,
2: this is the all-dead all animal podcast now. That's right. I, I feel like this show actually has
0: a pretty uh, strong animal trauma uh, segment to it. Well, I I was just thinking as we've gone through these haunted house movies, I mean, almost everyone does have a dog, and they they wind up dead fairly often, it's fair to say. Yep, say your goodbyes now, Vic. (laughs) There you go. All right, well, gentlemen, I hope you're ready to rock because we've got a very fun film tonight, Terrified, the 2018 release, and I have it all queued up on Shutter to go scene by scene with y'all and break this baby down. So any introductory thoughts as we go into this? Did you guys have a chance to look at it again, uh, Rich, before our show? What is this podcast about? (laughs) I did
1: have a chance to watch Terrified again uh, on uh, Vikram's uh, account. Thank you very much, Vikram. I'm sure anyone who's paid paid attention so far knows this, but this movie is definitely a little under the radar, especially for people who are only casual fans of the the genre. It is a Shutter exclusive, and it's a movie that I think caught a lot of us by surprise. Whether that's uh, whether that's good or bad is something we can hash out in this podcast. But you know, this is a movie that at least I hadn't heard of before this competition. So it's it's exciting to see that's made it to this far in the competition.
0: Yeah, yeah, like a whole universe uh, a century of haunted house films out there and October 2017 is when this film premiered at Morbido Fest, uh, presumably in Argentina and uh, then went on to a wider release in 2018. Vic, did you get a chance to to rescreen Terrified
2: I sure did. And I can tell you that this the icon for this was on my home screen of my smart TV and my son was like, Dad, why is that always on the screen whenever I turn on the television? It it scares me. Uh it is a it is a very disturbing cover.
3: It is. It is. You I, think
2: know. Ter- I think it's a terrible cover. It's
1: so cheesy looking. Like it looks so low rent compared to how good the film is. I mean, I'm glad you guys are excited about it. But I actually have it, I have, a, I have it here in my notes. Like, that's one of the things that bugs me about this movie is that I think the thumbnail is, is horrendous. It looks
2: like straight-to-video garbage. Wow. Well, my, my traumatized seven-year-old disagrees with you.
0: I mean, I think you can quibble with the execution, perhaps, or, you know, fonts and sort of, like, some lens flare or whatever. But, I mean, I think the concept of this guy splitting in half, like the wall, like it's basically the crack in the wall that figures very prominently throughout the movie as sort of this interdimensional doorway is sort of represented in the middle of this ghoulish figure's head. And, I don't know, it's 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 a very disturbing you know, ghost face on top of it. I, I don't know, man. It works for me. So
2: yeah, take that, Rich.
0: I'm yeah. happy for Look, That that dude, that dude. You know, we we can get
1: into it when he shows up. But like that dude works really well in the context of the movie for me. But I think it's also one of those cases where it's like the the effects in this movie are just good enough for the amount of time that they're on screen. But you don't want to like you don't want to linger on them too much. So doing a freeze frame of them. Not, not the way that I would go, but you know, it it drew you guys in. So, so here we are. So who am I to complain?
0: Yeah. I think the effects are fantastic in the movie, but yeah, I haven't subjected them to that, that level of scrutiny. So it's going to be fun to roll through it. Why don't we get started? Uh, I've hit play. And so I'll kind of um, guide us along and, Let's just talk about this movie. It's pretty brief. Um, it's only an hour and a half, not even it's two minutes short. So of 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 ninety minutes, and it goes by fast. But, but John, how
2: are, how are we going to turn this into a four hour podcast?
0: <laughs> you know, I have a feeling we could turn anything. We could turn the Shining into a four hour podcast. So. uh the movie begins and uh, yeah, this is a good example of how we could elongate this because I, I noticed something watching this movie right away that I wanted to kind of run by you. Like the opening shot is this slow, it doesn't begin with, you know, a lot of fanfare. There's very, very few title credits or, you know, it's not a title sequence in any way. There's just a couple of basic credits and then we're slowly moving in through this kitchen um, towards this ordinary housewife uh, with an apron, you know, doing her dishes. But the, the camera just slowly dollies in, trucks in towards her. And I noticed, like, in a larger sense, that this is a technique that I'm seeing a ton of in, in movies these days. Like, the camera in horror films is always just kind of slowly advancing on things. And it, it, it is a dynam- dynamic technique, but we're just basically going to see her looking down her drain. And the first thing I kind of wanted to throw out to you guys regarding the scene is that I I have street noise. I, I don't live out in the middle of nowhere. I have cars going by and whatnot a lot, but I I'll be damned if I can really hear what she's hearing. I don't hear voices. It doesn't, um, the subtitles don't give us voices. Have you guys ever like really heard anything substantive here beyond just the gurgling of the drain? Cause she, she talks about hearing very specific things coming from, from her drain. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we
1: never hear the things that she reports to her husband later, which I think she says, like they, they said they were going to kill me. Um, if, if memory serves me correctly, I don't mm-hmm. think you ever hear anything that specific, but I can tell you that, definitely the the last couple times i've watched it i was able to hear the sound of of voices i couldn't make it any words but also they could be you know speaking spanish and so i'm just not picking up on them mm-hmm. but it seemed to me like they were keeping it pretty abstract
2: yeah there's definitely i had the same thing it's like it's like looking for the predator in the predator movies Like, it's like your ear is pressed to the screen. Is there something? Do I hear something? (laughs) I think I hear something. And it does, it it is that a a terrific audio mix, I think, where there is this vague undercurrent of voices, but no, you can't discern anything intelligible from them.
1: I'll I'll tell you what, that's a, Vic, that's, that's something like I will harp on as we go through this movie tonight. I think this movie has incredible sound design, Mm -hmm. like for, for a horror movie, I think this is this is way above average in terms of all the little nuances and bits and pieces that really make a, an effective like sonic environment for horror. And this scene, I'm sorry you're missing out on it, John, because I do think that this this scene is a very, very good example of that. the The crossover between the, the the gurgling of water going down the drain and the the guttural voice. Uh, of a demon, like a, it turns out, are, are, are fairly similar. So it's it's fun to hear it cast in this light, where you're you're not quite sure what you're hearing, but you know that it's not a natural sound. It's
2: not just the sound of water. I took something interesting from this scene as well. I know we talked about the the last time we spoke about the film. We talked about how specific the the shared walls were to Argentinian neighborhoods. And that, that sort of created the sense that you couldn't you, – you didn't have to just haunt one house, that you could haunt sort of a neighborhood because they were all connected. But this scene reminded me that everyone's sharing pipes as well. And it actually really made me think about it in the same way, that something that is in the water, that is in the pipes, is something that is not contained to a, to a, a singular structure. That it can spread out in ways that makes it very scary.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always think of it when I see this scene, just because it, you know, has so many beats where uh, drains of, you know, sinks and storm drains and all those things are kind of portals to voices and and sometimes a lot more um, in terms of menace and threat. So I definitely see that connection but like how the evil moves around in this world of the of the film is is kind of hard to get a, a handle on it's not like there's like one mythology or, or rules that that you you oh well it this is this is what it does this is how it travels because you know it, it's also behind the walls as well and yeah, it just kind of it, – it seems to permeate between the realities because there's definitely an interdimensional thing going on here. We get mm-hmm. that very clearly with the sort of uh, parapsychology, you know, the meta-science or whatever you want to – metaphysical stuff um, rather that we get later um, because we do have a lot of researchers and experts that try to uh, decipher what's going on here. And, and the definite idea is that um, – little portals begin to open up between worlds and they um, bad things come through those portals which is kind of like uh, from beyond which I saw again not too long ago but that they, they really have a very clear mythology in that one which kind of governs you know when this machine is on and when it's off and that's sort of where the the, the, the barrier between the worlds gets fuzzy
2: it's definitely the mythology behind this is definitely very Lovecraftian, and I think From Beyond is a is a good comparison. Although I think there there are certainly others in the Lovecraft canon that that would apply. But yeah, it's it is that these are these are not ghosts and they're not demons. They're something from a place that we literally just can't understand, uh, and that does make them terrifying, even in a way beyond the more strictly religious demons and things that we've encountered in paranormal activity and the Amityville horror and some of those things. And I think we've all developed a preference for demons over, uh, vengeful spirits, but this is something, this is actually something else entirely. And it does make this movie stand out from the rest of the pack.
3: Well,
1: it's interesting because you say they're worldly, but then they have a very physical presence in this film. It's even after like, you sort of have this explanation that they're both like, you know, they're in this world and and they're not like, depending on, you know, what your, your point of view is, even in some cases they, they have a real physicality to them. And even this scene that you're talking about that opens the movie, you know, maybe this is something that like shows up in it. I, I never got around to reading it. So maybe you can tell me, but I always think that the, the bubble in the sink, when she washes more water down the drain and then, and a, a, a layer of uh, water forms over the, the drain and then it slowly pulses in the in the cadence of breathing gives this real very organic sense of a creature that is that is living inside the, the framework of the home yeah yeah th- so it's, very, it's creepy it's very unique
2: I have a question if we're if we're getting to, uh, I believe, this point in the movie where uh, the the husband shows up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I forgot his name already. But he mentions that, hey, you remember we hit that dog? And then, uh, you know, guess what? You won't believe it. The dog's still alive. Is that tied to what's happening in this film?
0: I don't don't know. You brought that up.
1: Yeah, I I had the same note. I was like, what is this about? Because they really go out of their way to like
0: to let this guy tell the story. Yeah, it's not a long story and it's sort of prefaced by something which is obviously meaningless, like talking about needing to call a guy a few times before he picks up. But then he goes into this, you know, kind of amusing anecdote where he compares this dog to the Highlander, um, in the, you can't kill it. And it's sort of, you know, he's happy that, that this dog that they apparently hit with a car, which would have been, you know, fairly traumatic and upsetting, you would think, um, you know, to, to kill this animal. Um, and then he's like, hey, you know, I saw the dogs. They're all as well. I suspect, Vic, that there is something going on with that. I, I don't think that that's just, you know, a, a happy little anecdote. I think that we see, I mean, look, what happens to the little boy? He's hit by a bus and he comes exactly. back
2: exactly it draws a parallel with what happens to the boy that was part of what maybe what made me think of it i don't think the i don't think the answer to the question is is necessarily in the movie but the more i watch it the more i go you know that's that's kind of weird that they hit this dog and then the dog came back to life and that's we're talking about the opening moments of the movie foreshadowing something that's going to happen a few minutes later
1: well not to mention the fact that this movie is, is as we discussed before is pretty short on explanations and you know, there's a couple of places where I think we've agreed that, that maybe it, or some of us have agreed that it suffers from that. But there are some places where I think the movie kind of makes it a strength where it's there's not always a bigger explanation, at least not one that we understand. It's just that we're in an area that is experiencing a lot of unusual activity for some reason, even though we don't have a clear cut explanation of what that reason is.
2: It is. This is a movie that has secrets. I think. Mm -hmm. Right? Like there there there's information I feel like it's I don't know, I can't think of a better way to put it. I feel like there this movie has secrets that it's not telling us. Mm -hmm. And and I like that about it.
0: Yeah, it's funny because while in a movie where you do have lots of experts that can pontificate and opine about, you know, theories that might explain what's happening here. And they tell anecdotes from their previous careers about supernatural experiences and all of that. And yet we don't have a lot of classic doctor exposition stuff where the movie, the filmmakers clearly feel compelled to, to give the audience, you know, certain answers that will kind of justify the most important Points And explain the biggest questions. Instead, like, we get that stuff as kind of background and shading and speculation. But but yeah, there's the key mysteries remain uh, enigmatic and mysterious and unsolved. And and I definitely think that it's to the, the benefit of the film.
1: On a slightly different note, as long as we're in the opening, I just, just want to throw out: Did anyone else find that the the credits in this movie are, and actually uh, the score in a few places, but the credits in particular are are pretty much a direct rip on Insidious?
2: I'd have to I'd have to go back and watch the credits for Insidious.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, T- take a look. They they like they have a very they have a very similar appearance. They're both like. It's, di- it's dialogue, 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 and then like a very dramatic music sting with these like exaggerated like red letters on, on a black background and then you're right back into the movie again. I don't know. I don't, I don't really hold that against it. But uh, it just struck me as a little odd in a movie that felt so, so kind of fresh and original like that element felt derivative
0: to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know how literally it is. But, I mean, I, I would say that I I think part of the f- – accessibility of this film is that it's, I wouldn't say it's trying to be Hollywood, but overall the movie plays very international rather than Argentinian, if that makes any sense. Like I feel like it is striving to kind of be, um, you know, not, not too regional or uh, provincial or whatever you want to say, you know, like I think it, it has kind of a, uh, an ambition to be very something that American audiences would readily get into. So maybe, maybe there's some, you know, it should feel like an, a movie like insidious was, was a thought process. I don't know, which was obviously, you know, very mainstream. So who knows? Well,
2: I, would, I, I would definitely say that the uh, Damien, anybody have a stab on his last
0: name? Pronunciation. God,
2: man, yeah. no, R- 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 no. Anyways, <laughs> A, definitely a student of the genre. Like you can see in this in this film, that this is someone who knows horror, who knows what works, who's really studied. I I would be stunned if he if he hasn't seen not just James Wan, but like all the movies that we've discussed in this podcast. I bet he's probably seen all of them and has plucked the things that worked and then spun them in this own you know his own interesting web. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, this is, this is not the
0: work of someone who's, who's never been to the movies. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, uh, the other big note of that scene is, uh, that's really his wife's only scene. It's, it's Juan is the, is the husband and, and Clara is the wife and, uh, Clara has this sort of shell shocked thing going on. Like she seems almost disconnected from her own fear and she's in this sort of, not catatonic state, but, but you know, she seems kind of um, numb already uh, to what's going on. Maybe resigned, I don't know. But but she doesn't have a lot of effect. And he doesn't seem like, he, he's, he's listening at the drain and, you know taking it fairly seriously, but he doesn't hear anything. And, and she says, I know very well what I heard. I spent all afternoon listening, but at the same time, she's not getting worked up about it either. She just says mm. they were speaking. And then he, he gives real world explanations as people are often want to do, you know, talking about old pipes and their clattering. And, uh, but he asks and he, and he mentions Walter, the neighbor, uh, banging away doing his remodeling, which is going to become sort of a leitmotif throughout the film, is Juan's annoyance with Walter Carbajal, the neighbor who uh, he believes, and, and Walter actually uh, uses the, this excuse that he's fixing things up next door. When I really get the feeling that it's just purely the supernatural phenomena that's making the the noise. Did you guys have a, a opinion oh, on that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think we're certainly led to believe that. I mean, uh, part of this is that, that's worth noting that, you know, as I went back to revisit this film this time, is that we're starting the movie in the middle of the story um, for no no real discernible reason um, that, that I can tell. Like, the the events that happen with, with Walter and, and his haunting have already occurred.
0: Well, yeah, the, the, the film definitely is playing around with, with time, as we've discussed previously. Like, there's a certain point uh, in the film where we kind of catch up and we, we move linearly. But um, it's going to be fun kind of going through the different time frames and, and assigning kind of where each of these scenes that we see, where they fit into the narrative. And maybe we will see some design or purpose to that as we go along.
2: I feel like from a structural perspective, I know we talked about this movie in comparison to Juwan, uh, especially uh, in regards to the structure. And I think that part of what Juwan gets away with is not developing the characters a lot because we're so engaged with figuring out where we are in the story and the way that it keeps bouncing around. And I think that that's part of what makes the first part of this movie work so well for me is that, this sort of temporal dislocation and catching up on Walter's story and, and, figuring out where he fits in with Juan and Clara keeps me engaged in a way where it's, I'm not really concerned with, you know, what their backstories are and, and some of that sort of stuff. I think some of that falls away in the, in the latter half. We'll get there when we get there, but they do it really effectively in the first half.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can tell it's an ensemble and I think horror movies, It's less important that we have a protagonist that we're, you know, really deeply identifying with their pursuit of their goals and, you know, all that kind of – the the sort of thing that we get with Star Wars is a classic example. where We're so invested in Luke Skywalker and his hopes and dreams and and, and we're identifying very strongly with him. Horror movies almost – are exempt from those type of requirements because we're, we're totally fine just watching an interesting situation and we can, we're sort of accustomed to as an audience meeting characters and then seeing them die. I mean, obviously we had the the subversion that psycho offered with the Janet Lee character, but that's because it was playing a conventional game where we think that she's going to be a traditional heroine. And when she dies, it is subverting our expectations for that, that kind of narrative approach.
1: I don't know about that broad statement that, like, horror fans, like, don't, like, need that connection to a a protagonist. I mean, I, I think that that's definitely, like, a type of horror movie or something that maybe you can get away with it. But especially comparing it to, like, you know, you bring up, like, Star Wars. Like I don't know that like sci fi is necessarily the the genre that you would want to compare it against.
0: Yeah, but like, we're I think, talking about Star Wars as being like the hero's journey, like one of the most fundamentally sound storytelling forms of all time. Like put aside that it's a sci fi film.
1: Okay, well put aside that it's a sci fi film, but then that's like saying that like in sci fi movies, like you don't you know, like people aren't looking for like a protagonist, but obviously they were because Star Wars did okay.
0: Yeah, I didn't say that you didn't need to have a protagonist in a sci-fi movie. What I said was what I was getting at was like in a Friday the 13th movie, for example, let's look let's even look at the very first Friday the 13th movie. We don't know that the final girl is our heroine in, in the first half an hour of the movie? Gradually, she sort of emerges from the ensemble, and that's not uncommon at all. Like we, we follow characters and they get killed. That's are you telling me that I'm I'm making that up, or or the audiences don't like those movies? That's all I'm saying.
1: In, in Friday the Thirteenth, I demand a, a a protagonist that is that is well developed and well rounded, buxom. Uh,
0: <laughs> well rounded, I get it. Well developed. <laughs>
2: Hey, wait, I, I have a question, guys. What's Star Wars? <laughs> Different
1: podcast, Vic. Right. <laughs> Anyways, I, I digress. I just say that I yeah, I just don't. I feel like that is a a statement that detractors of the genre would make, and I don't want to see you feeding the trolls, John. That's all. <laughs> I just, I'm more, I'm I'm concerned about the genre.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well. I, all I was trying to say is that we we don't reject a horror movie in the first you know half an hour because we haven't identified a, a heroine or a hero that is driving the story. You know we're fine jumping around watching people even live and die within the course of the story so
2: i I certainly think there are things you can substitute for that that keep you engaged and and on board with the film, and I think this movie has its has its finger on that. Uh, At least through a good portion of it.
0: So, yeah, I was going to say before all of that, that maybe we should um, look at this sequence in in a little detail because it's really masterfully done as she just goes into the bathroom and that's the last we see her alive. And it's just a very casual, okay, she's going into the bathroom, no problem. And then, you know, we cut to uh, Juan in bed and he just hears a, a thump and you know he's annoyed and incidentally it looked like her light is what woke her up like her bedside light was on and that's why she woke up and went to the bathroom mm-hmm. i don't know what to make of that but it's almost like maybe the house turned on the light and woke her up got her moving so that it could knock her off
1: i i mean i had a large just a larger feeling about this that she must like get up and work early because otherwise like who just like wakes up in the middle of the night and goes to go take a shower and their husband is just like eh. Mm-hmm. the hmm Rolls over. Like it seems like odd activity to not be part of your regular schedule.
0: Well it is five A. M. Like so it's not it's not three AM or something. So yeah, I think I think you're you're right. It's just sort of um, an alarm doesn 't go off or anything like that. you know she just sort of squints at, her light being on, gets up, and goes to the shower but he doesn 't seem you know surprised that she 's in the shower.
2: I will say I had the thought as when she gets out of bed and walks into the shower, it is the most nudity that we get in the film this is there's no sexuality in this film outside of that like brief moment of her in her underwear walking to. The shower, which does sort of distinguish it, not from every movie. The haunted house genre uh, uh, subgenre in particular seems to seems to not be too focused on that, but it does obviously come up a lot. And it was something that struck me this time is that's not that's not an element of this movie. There's nothing sexy about this movie at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is it. Like the if, you, if you're looking for cheesecake, it's it's her nighttime outfit as she just walks down the hallway. <laughs> yeah. It's it's true. Um and it's you know it's noticeable and it's probably not a complete accident. Like she could have been wearing pajamas or or shorts or something. But yeah, it, it's minimal sort of concession to uh the typical kind of libido indulging that that horror movies often give the audience.
2: Yeah, sorry Rich. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rich lives for those cheesecake shots.
2: No, no buxom women in this one.
0: Yeah, well-developed characters. I like yeah. that a lot. <laughs> so anyway, Walter goes next. Juan goes next door to Walters and starts screaming at him through the call box. He's really mad and just you know begging him to stop banging the wall. Kind of a, in some ways, a typical neighbor exchange these things happen you know you're when you're when your sleep is interrupted you can you can get pretty riled up but yeah he's just yelling uh on the street here at 5 a.m with no response but we do is kind of begin this idea that when you click on walter's call box like something answers but it ain't walter and it doesn't speak it just kind of breathes more good sound design
2: it is and that is something that comes up again with Albrecht and I, I sort of wondered initially, and this doesn't, this doesn't hold up. And I actually have, I have it in my notes and then I have it crossed out. But if there were specific rules for each house, like if there were things happening in one house that were different from happening in another, that were different from happening in the third. And it doesn't, it doesn't really hold true. They do eventually start to bleed over, but initially you do get this weird, like, the drains are happening to Juan and, and uh, Clara, but there's nothing really about that in Walter's place. Walter's got this thing under the bed where if you look at it from one way, you can't see it, and if you look at it from the other, you can. It, again, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't play out that way, but it's, I don't know, it was sort of interesting to look at it. And go, God, is it, it are the rules changing from one place to another? again, you're really on your toes just trying to figure out what the hell is going on.
0: Yeah, it seems like each house kind of, their haunting has its own flavor and characteristics. And the guy that is haunting Walter does appear to cross the street later in the film. And, you know, it doesn't seem like the phenomena is necessarily locked into or limited to either, to any of the locations. And, And nor does it seem like in a traditional ghosty way, like, Oh, well that's the spirit in that house because that spirit story was in that house. And you know, this house has its own backstory and its own. No, like it kind of feels like these beings, or I think they use the word being at, at some point in the movie have kind of their doorway is in one house and they sort of stay there or stake their claim or they're sort of mostly influencing that, that area. But but they are sort of new to our dimension from their own. That's kind of the impression I'm getting. Uh, did you guys notice that uh, the guy, uh, Juan, has these little skulls on his shirt? It's apropos of nothing, but it's kind of amusing. Yes, I actually did take note of that. <laughs> so he's taking note in this scene that uh, that's not Walter. Like he, he starts to, after all this maybe couple, two, three-minute sequence realizes that the source of this thumping that he's hearing is coming from within his house. And he asks, the calls are coming from inside the house. But he says, uh, Clara, is that you? Is that you banging? He says, and he sort of wanders. He's got a very, by the way, schlubby bod, which I appreciate. <laughs> this guy doesn't look like a typical, you know, professional actor. So he goes into the bathroom and it's this just, unbelievable tableau that confronts him and the audience, which is just all of these, the bloodstains are clearly like impact marks and there's like, there's some smearing and dripping and everything, but basically you're just seeing all of these places where either the front or the back of her head has collided with the tiles of the, of the shower or the bathroom wall or high up the wall towards the ceiling as her lifeless body is just being thrown in a somewhat rhythmic, there's almost a pattern to it, just back and forth, but at sort of different trajectories. And I've seen a lot of horror movies, but this was the point where watching this movie the first time, I'm like, holy shit, this is a find.
1: <laughs> also, good good crunchy sound effects in this one. A lot of a lot of celery stocks. Being twisted uh, to accomplish the the sound of her being smacked against this wall. I feel like you hear a lot of little bones cracking. Very, very rich and and visceral uh, audio here.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: I had the thought watching it this time that if only he had realized where the sound was coming from initially, that he might have been able to save her. And it made it a little more tragic when he's when he's sort of clinging to her body and getting blood all over himself and essentially framing himself for the crime. Yeah. Uh, that if only if only he had, you know, paid more attention to which direction the sound was coming from, he might have. I, I don't know, maybe he wouldn't have, but that she's long dead by the time he gets there when you realize how
0: long this has been going on. The audience because, is very much aware of how long because it's like, oh, so this is the thumping we've been hearing for like three minutes.
1: <laughs> and also, like maybe with the exception of the kid, I think this is the only time where you really see the, the entity or whatever it is kill someone in this movie. You, you have people who are injured but yet continue to live. This is the only character that I, I think is, is just outright killed.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, uh, no, Yano. I believe what's his name? Uh, Yano. Yeah, who no, Yano. gets the glass in his eyes and all that. I my my assumption is he's dead towards the end, and then Albrecht is killed as well.
1: Well, Albrecht also shows up as a as a as a as a creature. Well, yeah, so that's it's, one of the concepts so of the
0: one of the concepts of the movie. I, I think that differentiate it one of you guys was talking earlier about this and I almost brought it up, but yeah, this is a movie where when you die, you potentially become part of it, which is something we see in various horror films, but not usually ghost films. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know that I would call this.
1: I, I would not call this a ghost film.
2: No. And Albrecht says that when in, in her sort of brief explanation of it, that, these things can take they are in the water or the water is, is the, the method of transmission from this other dimension, but that they can take you over. And there's a couple instances where they're like, have you, have you had any water to drink? And so I think it's not an accident that Clara is killed in the shower. You know, that that is, that is how that thing gets into her or at least, you know what it's using in order to manipulate whatever it's manipulating to smash her head into the wall 57 times.
0: Oh, we see Walter also, uh, in a possessed version of Walter in the wall later. Um, so it does assimilate your soul or however you want to think of it. So yeah, it cuts from that to the scene, like this is a very logical transition where we see that he has been put in a mental facility as one might expect, but these three, I wouldn't, I guess it's fair to call them all elderly though. They're of somewhat different ages. These three paranormal investigators come and they say that they believe him. Uh, John O says that. I think it's
2: possible that uh, when I watched this scene, it jumped out at me. I think it's possible that George Lewis as Rosenthal might give the best performance in this movie. He's great. His, his eyes in this scene, like off the bat, there's something about him that looks a little bit crazy.
0: Yeah. He's pretty great and, uh, and unhinged throughout. His, his eyes definitely get, he, he's definitely wild eyed at various points in the, in the film.
2: Well, in his journey, uh, his journey is one toward madness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He doesn't get possessed. Yano gets possessed. Uh, Albrecht gets possessed. He goes mad.
0: I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he's the—he's also the, the the specter at the very
0: end of the film. That's oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, they—that's what how Juan describes him uh, at the end, and then we see—we don't see him, but we see the uh, he apparently there's a little bit of poltergeisty activity. There's a sort of telekinetic chair being thrown um, at the camera, which is our sort of final sting of the film. And yeah, the, the implication is that it's, it's, um, Rosenstock Rosentalk.
1: I, I will say you mentioned the wild eyes, Vic. Uh, I do think there's a, there's a fun game to be played here of like who, who would get cast in the American remake of this movie. Although I guess that the remake they're doing isn't American, is it? It's a Spanish production. No, it's going to be an American production, right?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's definitely more geared towards a, an American audience. Yeah. Yeah, Anyways,
1: I I I I brought a a Jeff Goldblum for Rosenthal
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit! Would I watch the hell out of that movie? That's awesome. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) And uh, yeah, Albrecht. I mean, we have so many older actresses that could play her. Yeah, it's great, fun to think about. And maybe by the time you guys are listening to this, that movie will already exist. But uh, (laughs) right now, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So the other big interesting sort of mythological piece of the puzzle that we get here is that they bring him photos of something, a similar case that happened, I believe, in this country, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they're drawing lines between these cases. They're making connections between this 1998 case in the U.S., and what's happening in his um, neighborhood, and what happened to his wife, and it, uh, you know, not to think about prequels or sequels or whatever, but I mean, it is kind of cool to think of well, what what causes this phenomena to suddenly um, occur in one location versus another?
1: And The answer is that uh, Rosenthal has a glass case uh, where he's been keeping a a haunted doll. <laughs> yes. It's-
2: <laughs> I, I just assumed it it's was talking to home, re, home remodeling <laughs> anytime someone remodels a home they invite some sort of interdimensional uh, uh, demon into their world <laughs> it's,
1: a, it's a good point Vic for, for all the houses in a, in this genre I don't feel like there have been a whole lot of remodeling scenes which does seem like it would be the the first thing you'd be doing when you move into a haunted
0: house but that's kind of a good uh, segue to Walter Carbajal the 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 neighbor because it's his um, remodeling quote unquote that segues from this scene to the Walter scene, and Albrecht is the one that kind of brings up his name, and the others two other two investigators look at her, and it smoothly segues to him calling dr albrecht's office and uh i know uh, vic is eager to talk about this scene and, and so am i <laughs> but he can't get a hold of her because she has i can't tell if this is the world's best receptionist or the worst receptionist because this woman just will not let poor walter speak to dr albrecht He's desperately making his case, and she just gives him the runaround. Just this coldly playing the gatekeeper, and uh, obviously, eventually, he gets her attention somehow. But wow, it's it's hard to to get through this this assistant that that she on the front line.
2: Well, there's something sort of cryptic about her too. Mm -hmm. it's not just it's not just that she's playing gatekeeper like i think doesn't she she actually sort of hangs up on him at one point yeah and it's i really i really had this sense of like again there there are secrets to this movie and i got the sense that not just that she wasn't going to let walter through but that she didn't want to it was it was a little hard for me to to understand exactly what role she was playing. But it wasn't again, it wasn't just like trying to get through to Anna Wintour or something like she was she was being she there was it, it fit in totally with the movie. She was being cryptic. She was being weird. She wasn't there were things she wasn't saying you could try other experts. I've called all the other experts. Well, I'm sorry. We can't help you click, you know. Um, you know, like three days of the condor ish or something. It was, it was, it, again, it works. It's very cool in the way that it works. But I just wondered, like you almost get the sense that Albrecht is intentionally avoiding Walter or that, that there's something that they don't want to talk to him for a specific reason. But I can't, obviously I can't articulate what that might be, but did you guys catch any of that? Did you feel any of that? I, I did. And I mean, I think
1: it's, I really didn't know what to make of it because then, you know albrecht does eventually show up later investigating the case and she she doesn't you know not not to get like too ahead of ourselves here but like she's not showing up because walter shared video evidence with her because walter doesn't make it far enough to send the video evidence to her so what is it that happens in between the 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 blocking of of walter's calls by this assistant and the and the time when albrecht takes the case I yeah, I can't figure out what's going on here or, or what the the point of this exchange is, other than to keep uh to keep uh Walter on the hook for suffering this uh this haunting as long as possible.
0: I think she references that he did reach her with some photographic evidence. Uh we'll we'll find out when we get there, but I, I'm pretty sure by the time she does show up, it, it, it's clear that um she She gets the message, and she believes him, but it's just too late for him um however, that timing exactly played out. I don't know you know maybe he sent off a tape or something, and then he died the next night, you know before she saw it and got back to him you know the next day. That was kind of my interpretation, but back to this kind of cold and cryptic dismissal that the the voice on the phone this young woman um who is screening uh, dr. Albrecht's calls I, I get that sense Vic, that it's it's almost like she's she doesn't seem like just a it doesn't isn't passionate about her boss's work and doesn't want to bother with it or you know there's not like some kind of easy normal psychology that we can ascribe to this character she really does seem kind of um, like part of the problem somehow um, uh, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame Albrecht for it like I, I, I maybe maybe my interpretation of that is that a lot of crazies and kooks are trying to get at her as you might expect people with you know mental illnesses and conspiracy theories and stuff and so she, she does need a pretty good screener to, to keep those people from at best wasting her time and at worst doing you know harm to her in some way. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's like one like clear way to read it, but it's just kind of funny thinking about how fucking difficult this woman is <laughs> that answers the phone.
2: <laughs> well actually I, I wonder, Rich, I think maybe you hit on something. Do you think it's possible that Albrecht wants him to stay in the house longer?
1: Uh that's interesting. Maybe.
2: Like she's trying to draw it out. Yeah. Huh? Bring us, bring us. You know, she she puts him off, puts him off, puts him off, and then says, "Well, bring us some proof," which is what drives him to stay in the house longer. And the only reason they ultimately get the pictures and, and or you know whatever it is that they get,
1: as, as we talked about before, like when they when they when uh there's sort of this question of like what are they really there for later on in the movie, and like they, I think it's Rosenthal that lays it out is like they're just there to collect evidence. Like they're not they're not there to do an exorcism. They're not there to clean the house. Like their their goal is just evidence. So sure, why don't you want to like just like let this guy, you know, provoke the entity as long as possible?
0: Yeah, I I agree that there's definitely not a sense of, like, at any point in this film, well, proactively, if we do X, Y, or Z, we'll solve this problem, and we'll defeat the evil, and we'll banish it, and we'll close the door. Like, no, they never get past the point of, oh, well, let's document this phenomena. And, you know, that will be its, somehow understanding it will be its own reward, scientifically.
1: Yeah, it's very scholarly (laughs) <laughs> the yeah. the The ambitions of the characters in this film
0: yeah they they just seem like somewhat ineffectual academics, yeah not really prepared to fight back in any way they're they 're fascinated by this stuff, but essentially feckless at the same time, so poor walter uh yeah we 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 see what his life is like, living in this haunted house and Yeah, we could raise questions about, well, you know, he couldn't leave the house or or whatever, but, you know, let's not get into his financial situation or if he thought he could stick it out or he could get help. I mean, he's definitely calling people and trying to get help. And he's basically, everyone he's calling is passing him around, right? So we get that impression. But he's, uh, he's taking pills and he's obviously pretty pretty strung out and exhausted at this point and and that's another thing that I think you see in some of these movies is that you need to wear down as the demon or the evil force or whatever you need to kind of wear down the resistance of the human characters of the residents of these places to make them more vulnerable to manipulation and as, they're, as they become weaker, as their defenses are, are whittled away, they're putty in your hands somehow. Or they can be taken in whatever form your brand of evil wants to take them. The next thing you know, you're trying to give caterers a check. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Never stiff the caterer.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: a bad check.
1: <laughs> There's almost a, a feeling as you reveal the the evil in this movie that they're not necessarily. It's not like they showed up like hell bent like the creature that that's in this house. And I, I know we haven't quite broken into what the what the creature's doing, but like, but it's not like it seems like hell bent on capturing Walter. It sort of seems like, you know, I mean, like Vic, you owned a snake. It's like when you when you put a rat in a snake's den, like. It'll sort of eat when it's ready, right? Like, otherwise, it just kind of, like, moves around the room, like, scaring the shit out of the mouse.
2: That's a, that is a that is an apt metaphor. That snake did scare the shit out of the mouse for a while.
0: Yeah, it's it's sort of toying, getting the measure of him. I mean, you could argue that it's what I just said, and the the person needs to be vulnerable enough, you know, to, to actually kill Walter, which is apparently what happens. I don't know. Kill might not be the word, but it takes him right and then he's he's not around anymore and and if we do see him he's he's one of them it could be that he needed to be he needed to be his strength needed to be whittled away to a point where it could do that like and maybe maybe that's i don't know what the animal kingdom version of that is but isn't that kind of like when a cat is playing with a mouse or something and it, it just has to be to a point where it's not going to be able to bite you when you, when you bite it. I don't know who knows, but well, something going on. I,
2: I have a question though. So when the, the little boy and he goes over into Walter's yard and you just see Walter's eyes through the blinds and he says, get away from here, stay away from this house. And the kid backs up and gets hit by the bus. Is that Walter or has he been taken over at that point? Because that's after, uh correct me if I'm wrong but that's after the scene in which we see the thing come out of the closet and grab him,
0: right? Well why don't we why don't we watch the film and I, I have a feeling that we'll be able to figure out where that scene takes place, but as you know, we are seeing scenes out of order. So just because it follows that in the film's running time doesn't mean that it happens after Walter is dead if that makes sure, any this sense. Is
2: the truth if in fact that Walter has been taken over at that point, it gives the sense that this thing has a plan, right? Yeah. That it's, it's toying with Walter until it gets this point of, okay, now I need Walter because now I want this to happen. And it gave me this sense of like, maybe this thing kind of is a puppet master, whatever, whatever this force is. And that, yes, it's toying with Walter, but at a certain point, there are things that it wants to happen, and so then it's going to take Walter because
0: it needs Walter to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's obviously some kind of cumulative effect and that it's getting stronger and the barriers are getting weaker between our realm and, and, and their realm. And they're more – the forces that are at work here are more powerful. I mean, culminating with it can just reach out and snap Albrecht's neck. Like, I don't think it could do that on day one. So all of these people dying and losing their sanity and, you know, being taken over, I think that all of that is sort of charging up some kind of battery. And maybe that's the the plan is just to, you know, gradually... You have to you have to crawl before you can walk, and you know by gradually terrifying Walter and you know making him so sleep deprived that it can take him. You know maybe that gives it the strength to to take uh, Clark, Clara in the shower, or you know maybe maybe the little boy. Dying causes so much psychic harm to the mom to, that it, it, it makes the evil more powerful and, and ready to do, you know, whatever the next move is. It's kind of hard to follow this because of the chronology being so mixed up. But, I mean, I bet you could draw a line once you once you did lay everything out chronologically. I bet you could draw a line where the, the, the power of, of the evil is arcing upward, you know, steadily. That certainly feels right to me the way that the movie
2: plays out and in many ways that little boy getting hit by the bus is the the thing that pushes everything toward this climax toward the point where yes it can reach out and and snap Albrecht's neck so it does seem like it's it's pushing to get to that point
3: yeah
2: Uh, that's such a that's such a pivotal point in the film in terms of what happens afterward
0: yeah 100 percent so right now we're at the point where I think we first see the, uh, the man under the bed, and it's a great subtle shot. It's brilliant, actually, because we're looking right under the bed and there's nothing there, and as the camera, uh, you know, lifts upward, to follow Walter as he stops, you know, looking, peering under the bed, as he kind of straightens up and just kind of gazes out across the room. We get just the last few frames of under the bed. And during that time, we clearly see the figure, this this emaciated giant bald man thing suddenly loom forward. So you, you just get a quick glimpse of him before uh, the camera, the, the frame, you know, Props out what's under the bed it's fantastic yeah and he's such a he's such a good
1: uh creature design i mean yeah. for for what is essentially like a, a humanoid like he is so like pale and and floppy mm-hmm. yet feels very alive like feels very uh i don't know viral is that is the the is the word I'm looking for, but you know, you know what I mean. Like he, he definitely has like energy. He's not lethargic. He's not dying. He's not a decrepit zombie. Like he feels like a primitive humanoid creature, but one that is very like alive and and seeking.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's back to sort of the multi-dimensional or even alien kind of notion versus typical. Ghosty, demony, dead things alive—you know, coming after you—type of thing. He's he is more alive. Uh, there's a vitality to him.
2: This is an, an interdimensional being's perverse interpretation of what a human being is. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a, very, a, a very good it's, description. It's not a reanimated corpse. It's yeah, it's it's something sort of a fun house mirror version of what a human being should be.
0: And it could even be taken so far as to say, this is an alien interpretation of what a haunting would look like. Yeah. Meaning, like they're translating our, our nightmares and our fears and kind of, you know, what it's picking up from the inhabitants of, of, of these homes and translating them in its, in their own sort of interdimensional alien ways so that it, it looks and feels like a haunting but that's it's not exactly that at all because yes these are not ghosts these are not traditional catholic or you know this is not the devil in any way these are these are just yeah alien beings essentially that are that have powers that are kind of closely analogous to what we would uh, ascribe to poltergeists and and spirits and demons and
2: john i would say too you alluded to what a great not alluded, you stated right out what a great shot that is when we see the thing under the bed. And there's a number of those shots. Like when it comes to how the director handles the, the actual physicalization of these beings, it's perfect. I mean, it's you're going to going mock me for saying this, but he opens the door just enough. He hits it just right. He doesn't show you too much. He keeps everything uh leaves just enough to your imagination but gives you your imagination just enough sort of horrifying details to work with that it's as scary i think as these images could be as you described earlier is
1: also i mean that's very reflected in his his storytelling as well he's never revealing the full
2: picture he's always giving you just enough to keep you interested yeah. Like I said, it, it, this movie has secrets, and he keep, he gives you hints of what the secrets are, but he's never going to reveal the the full picture to you. And,
0: and that's why, for me, like if we were watching Paranormal three right now, I would be pulling my hair out. But I I love just sinking my teeth into this movie because it's it's rich and it's multi layered and it's 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 not easy to completely figure out. And there's just but there's you have the sense there's so much under the surface. So, yeah, in this sequence, we just saw the the guy under the bed. We got a better look at him, and, like, his leg is bent at this weird, like, he's folded up like a corpse in a suitcase. But, you know, as we said, it's not – you know, it, it just seems like he's that elastic somehow, which is – just wrong in a different way. And and after that, like the guy is cowering in this very childlike way under a sheet, something I think we can all relate to and something that horror movies do a lot. And we see this, you know, the silhouette of this alien looking hand, these long fingers, you know, reaching out over his face, um, you know, on the other side of the sheet. And then it cuts and, you know, apparently nothing much comes of that, which, which makes sense, you know, with the slow playing that's going on here. By the the spirits, whether by design or necessity, and then he wakes up. He, he must have drifted off. It didn't didn't yank back that sheet just yet and go after him. But he wakes up and all of his furniture is like in, in, in sort of another classic haunted house kind of way. It reminds me of Poltergeist the movie, uh, very specifically. All of his furniture is sort of turned upside down and moved around, and you know he's just surrounded by like every every piece of furniture in the house is like stacked up next to his bed. It is interesting that
1: this is a, a trick that will get deployed later in the film. I think maybe more than once, where they he does this gag of like putting you right on the, the the precipice of precipice of the of the kill, so to speak, or the moment where it seems like the the creature is about to strike, only to just cut away, and you just have to assume that that nothing happened. It's a very Unusual choice, I can't say that I especially like it. It seems a, a tiny bit manipulative to me that you know you if you're gonna like deliver me to the point in, in horror where it's clear that like something's about to happen I don't know it feels a little like a bit of a cheat to cut away and just sort of like wave it off like well nothing happened nothing nothing interesting happened, so we cut the
2: rest of that bit out he's, I, he's I edging you he's edging you rich. <laughs> <laughs> Last pick.
0: yeah it it does seem like kind of a well we don't know exactly how to punch out of this and we don't we don't really have a, a very smooth answer like for to, to define what happened so we're just gonna cheat it you know we're just gonna jump ahead in time and then we'll tell you where he ended up and he ended up being alive the next morning you know, but where normally you would think in cinematic grammar, the the cut where the hand is coming in over his, over his face is that, Oh, and then when you cut to like the house outside the next day, Oh, he's dead. Right. Like I, that I would, that would be, there would be some logic to that. It just didn't show us um, him being killed, but instead it's, Oh, he's fine. So yeah, it is kind of a cheat.
1: Yeah. It's weird. I'm trying to imagine like that same scene playing out in like a, a book. I feel like you know, you'd have a hard time accepting that they, they just like moved on and there's zero explanation for, for what had happened. But um, yeah, but I, I don't know. Anyways, this instance doesn't bother me quite as much as when it happens later in the film. So we can revisit that later. OK,
2: I would I will also just say, too, it would bother me more if it continued throughout the film. But at a certain point, like, he takes the shackles off and you do see what happens mm-hmm. after, you know, when those things go on. And so it's – I understand from a logical standpoint, yes, like, it is sort of bothersome on the individual scenes. But in the movie as a whole, like, he's holding back because he's he's going to hit you with, with, you know, both barrels in, uh, in, in the last 30 minutes of the movie. Right. Uh, I mean – well, yes, except that he will pull this trick again with with Funes, uh
1: in the last thirty minutes of the movie.
0: Mm, okay. Well, yeah. Let's put a pin in that map. But Vic, I think your point is well taken in that we need to build, and the, the the sort of progression dictates that you hold back up to a point and and then let loose with the horror. I mean, and that that's a tried and true technique. But for now we're back to Walter um, back in his office making another phone call to uh, Dr. Albrecht and he's this is a, a scene that reminds me of translation issues and I'm hoping that there's some like special uh, you know 25th anniversary cut or something of this movie we get someday with a new translation of the subtitles because this is a scene that reminds me that we're not getting the best translation and I would love to see a fantastic translation or i could just learn spanish but you know like that's gonna happen I, yeah i
1: agree it is not a sterling uh example of of a, a port to
0: english which w- you wouldn't think it would be hard to find somebody that was really conversant in both of those particular two languages but i don't know maybe so In any event, like he's talking about, he's going crazy, and he hasn't slept in weeks, and it's urgent. And, you know, this is where the woman is like, hey, we can recommend another specialist. (laughs) I've talked to all of them. She's the only one who can help me. And we cut from there to him uh, coming home from work, and there are the two kids playing soccer in the street, including the little boy who we will soon learn meets a, a tragic end in that very street. And we're still getting the audio of this conversation. And he's saying to the the woman uh, on the phone that, you know, how can I provide proof of something that can't be seen? And I think Vic, this is where uh, she ultimately hangs up on him, where she just says, I'm sorry, Mr. Carpahal. We can't help you at the moment. And there is sort of a she says something along the lines of like Dr. Albrecht is not available. She's busy. She's out like something, something like that. Maybe she's on another case. I don't know. Uh, but he's, he doesn't want to even walk into his own house, which is a point you get to, um, when you're being terrorized and this is where Juan comes up to him and what's going on in your house, dude, (laughs) he he confronts him over the, the noise, his noise complaint, the ongoing beef that he has. And his wall is all cracked up as well. And this is what I was talking about with the poster and everything, this idea of this crack in the wall and what that represents and how it grows and sort of what's on the other side of the crack. And, and this is where we get the remodeling thing where, you know, I guess Walter just doesn't want to say, well, I'm being haunted, man. Um, you know, he doesn't want to have this conversation with his neighbor and I guess open himself up to, Scorn and distrust, and uh, you know, maybe one questioning his his sanity and all that. So he says, Ah, um, it's that I'm remodeling the place, I'm fixing up the house. And so that's a conversation that he feels comfortable having. I love this scene though,
2: like, I love this moment in the movie where those two timelines intersect. And all of a sudden now you have your temporal footing and you understand where we are in the movie in relation to what happened to Juan and Clara. And also why Juan is is screaming at Walter about remodeling, even though Walter is clearly not remodeling. I don't know. it's, It's the those are the moments. Those are the aha moments for me that substitute for understanding you know, Walter's financial situation or his history with mental health or the things that, that you would sort of traditionally put in to make him more of a character. Like I'm okay with him being as thinly drawn as he is because I'm enjoying this, this puzzle of putting together the the movie and the storyline and the, and the timeline as it plays out, because it also holds up on multiple viewings. Like you watch it again and you, and you start to pick up on other things that you're noticing uh, and how they connect to each other. Like that's rewatchability is a big thing in identifying a great horror film. And this movie definitely has that.
1: And I, I wouldn't argue with that, Vic, but I, I'm curious, like, do you see any sort of narrative value in this, disassociative storytelling. Like, is there any, is there any like real reason for the narrative to start with, uh,
2: with Claire and her, and her husband? To me, the, the benefit of it as a viewer is that you are, you are in a state of constantly being off your balance and trying yeah. to figure out where you are. And so it's, we've talked about this, with Oculus and we talked about it a bit with the shining that if you can create in me the sense that I don't really know what's going on or that you're, you're sort of recreating this sense of like what it would be like to lose your mind. That's really valuable. That's a way that I think you make a film that really stands the test of time. And when you, when you have that disjointed temporal, uh, structure, that really connects with me. And I, again, I can't speak to anybody else. To me, I really like that. It's why, you know, Pulp Fiction is in my is in my top 10 movies of all time. And I, I think that those moments really connect with me, but especially in a horror film where having somebody off balance and not really sure what's going on is really the point of a movie. Uh, it's really to make you feel uncomfortable and unsure of yourself and unsure of what you're watching
0: yeah this we'll never know for sure unless we did our own you know the phantom edit and we re-edited this movie in chronological order to see how it played but i i I think that this movie was not written you know conceived and written in chronological order and then they're just like you know what fuck we got to make this we got to do some crazy shit in the editing room let's, 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 let's present it out of order. No, I mean, I think this is the exact, the appropriate structure to engage and sustain the interests of the audience. I think that's a killer open. Um, the fact that it, you know, where it takes place in the narrative isn't as important as the fact that it's the, it's the best scene to hook us and tell us what we're in for with this movie and hopefully you know be be riveted and and ready for for more.
1: Yeah, I mean you're talking about being effective. Now I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just like I'm literally just trying to like kind of decipher it a bit is that you guys are talking about an effective use of of like technique and style in storytelling. And I'm just wondering is, is there anything that this like lack of of chronological storytelling is doing to enhance our understanding of the story is uh-huh. it doing anything to to actually enrich like you know do, do you gain something from seeing walter's story second on a purely like narrative character storytelling level and i'm not, I'm not saying you have to i'm just
0: wondering if you do because I didn't. Vic brought up like very specifically, and Vic, you can elaborate on this. But you, you, you seem to say there that you, you, you had a sense of delight when, when you saw that intersection happen. And as a viewer, like sort of that discovery and piecing together of evidence process can be really rewarding and pleasing. And I, I think that's what Vic said, right? Where like to you it was it was great when you're like oh there's Juan and he's talking about the remodeling and now I get that and like there is sort of a delightful quality to that no I, but i see what rich is saying I mean,
2: what rich is saying is is it's does this does the story evolve differently does it add something to the narrative to tell it out of order or is it just about keeping us as the audience off balance and you know creating creating that sense in us of like wait what the hell is going on
0: but the only way to really answer that would be to present it in chronological order and say okay which one do you prefer i agree and i
2: and but i so yeah i don't think it i don't think it it necessarily adds to the to the narrative aspect of it aside from sort of holding some of the cards back and everything else. The other thing, actually I mentioned Pulp Fiction, but that's, I'm actually not sure that's that's necessarily the right comparison. I think the sort of the first half of this film, what I would compare it to is something like a Morris Peros or, uh, 21 grams, the Guillermo Arriaga. So we're and, kind of thinking uh,
0: of a Spanish language sort of Latin America thing going on. Yeah. But those are those
2: are those are both films that I think do the same sort of juxtaposition of multiple storylines and how they intersect. Uh, so I think those are those are both uh, interesting touchstones. Well, that wasn't
0: in vogue storytelling style in the early 2000s, right? I mean, it, it was certainly yeah. true in in yeah you know, films from Mexico and and other countries. South America and and beyond, and as well as like Pulp Fiction, but maybe maybe there's some connective tissue to, to this Argentinian film, as that it was a tradition that was accepted.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I could I could tell you from a, I mean, like obviously, like you guys can speak more from the traditional screenplay standpoint. I I don't want to go too deep too deep down this rabbit hole. I just find it interesting. Is that you know from a certainly from a from a television point of view, I can tell you that the the non cold open is always like the first go-to move of someone who has a story on their hands and they're convinced that the audience is not going to stick with it if they tell it linear, in a linear fashion because the beginning is too boring. Like if you start this movie with Walter, some producer's like, you know what? No, people are going to turn this off. Like, you, you got to start with the woman getting beat up in the shower. Otherwise, like, no one's going to believe it's a real horror movie. But then, like, that, I wouldn't, that doesn't seem like it's really the case because, like, Walter gets involved in some, you know, some pretty good scares in his segment. So it's like, you know, I, I don't know that we're necessarily, like, if you were to start the movie with Walter, like, you'd be losing anything. Anyhow, I i, I didn't mean to have it unfold into into this big
2: of a discussion. I was just kind of curious well you fucked up now didn't you Rich <laughs> Rich what I would say is that I understand exactly what you're saying about using that I've heard that referred to as a hiccup that you that you you pull something from further on in the story and put it at the top as a as a way to tease people with where it's going and I just don't think that's quite what they're doing here this feels the, the because the narrative is is disjointed enough that it's less about grabbing something to to put some you know to tease the audience with where it's going and more about really using that disjointedness as a way to unsettle the audience like it's it really is about creating a vibe and a tone throughout the film that again they they don't quite pull off through the through the whole movie but for the for the first half of it really does make me unsettled and keep me off my uh you know, keep, keep me off balance when I'm watching it. Like it makes it scarier
0: because of how it's told. The last thing I'll say is I am a professional script reader and I've read tens of thousands of them. And it's basically what I do all day, every day, at least in 2020. Oh shit. I just dated the podcast. Well, at least for the last year, I've been reading scripts every day, all day. And I will say that absolutely it's an incredibly overused thing to rely on the flash forward open and acknowledging cliches and avoiding them or subverting them is definitely something I like to see in a screenplay. So, um, yeah, point taken that in a way they are sort of going down a cliche route with, with this. So that's valid, but I think that when you do it as artfully and intentionally and skillfully and effectively as this movie, it it seems at least to me like, well, of course that's the way it should be done. And that's just a mark of of good execution that I'm not immediately thinking, yeah, but what if they did it this way? And I think it would be better if it was chronological. Like that would have to be proved to me. I innately accept this movie the way it is presented. And I think that's just sort of my way of saying it's it's awesome. And it, it seems like exactly the way it should be. But in any event, uh, Walter moves on to um, talking to himself here and saying, do you want proof? And he's setting up his, his cameras, you know, to capture this thing in the act so that he can bring in Dr. Albrecht and hopefully gain her assistance, which is, alas, a, a, a failed enterprise, as we'll soon see. Uh, however, we get some really cool camera gags out of his little, device that he sets up and aims at himself as he lies in this really pitiful bed i was thinking the decor of walter's house is like bomb shelter chic or something you know like there's no certainly no feminine touch but you know this is as oppressive a domicile as as you'll see a quote-unquote normal person living in you know pre or post haunting and i know the 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 spirits or the demons, whatever the beings rearranged his furniture. And he's probably, you know, not done a good job putting it all back together, but it, it's almost overdone how miserable his surroundings are. <laughs> Can I ask, do you guys, what do you guys think
2: the the creature's relationship to the camera is? Does it know it's being recorded? Is it is it reacting to the camera specifically or is
0: it unaware of it? I thought there was an implication that it was like curious about it. I don't think it like, I mean, I'm I'm not, I'm exaggerating to say, you know, well, I don't think it mugs for the camera or anything. Well, of course it doesn't because that would be silly, but I I, I don't, I'm not aware. And of course I'm, I'm, you know, letting the movie, the sequence play. I I know it shows up on the camera, but it, it, to me, it seems indifferent to it. And I'll let you know if I see anything interesting as it plays. But what we do get, which is, uh, I'm on the, a little on the fence about, and I want to see what you guys think is he sees this very almost staged, uh, shadow of the silhouette of, of this thing's head looms in and it reaches its hand out and wiggles its fingers. And this is all in silhouette. And it almost kind of feels like it's doing a shadow puppet. Did, did you guys notice that? Felt a
2: little bit Nosferatu. I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I didn't feel like it was making a shadow puppet. That's that's probably just me. But just the way the hand looks, I mean, it is kind of shaking in kind of a disturbing, palsied way. Uh, this is the one thing that I, I find not unintentionally comedic. But if, like, there was a Vic, didn't you find, like, a scary movie? One of you guys did— A a scary movie for uh, Spanish films. I think it was Rich. Rich, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And like, I could see the sort of parody of this sequence being pretty funny, and also kind of rendering the scene absurd.
2: Yeah, where that it turns into a a a dog barking or a duck quacking.
0: (laughs) Exactly, it does like a
2: little shadow puppet show. (laughs) gremlins gremlins too when they when they turn the shadow puppets into abraham lincoln (laughs) yes yes.
0: it's it's right on the verge of unintentionally comedic to me but anyway after that he he goes and the camera has fallen down and there's this immediate playback of the naked man's figure standing over his bed looking at a sleeping or you know at least walter's eyes are closed and it's very unsettling and then the guy turns around and walks into this large piece of furniture that reminds me of the thing from Tale of Two Sisters the wardrobe that falls on one of the characters in that movie but it's a brilliant little this is this is horror screenwriting at its best in the sense that he's like wait so i saw what happened And now he turns and he looks at that, the closed doors of that piece of furniture. And he's like, and the audience is like, oh my God, it's, it's in there right now. It's great. (laughs) It is good. I had a bit of a, an issue with
1: the, the video playback, I think does that glitchy, like it's just sort of a a hackneyed, like, like late nineties, early two thousands, like horror movie cliche of like that, like fast, slow movement thing Mm -hmm. where you know, like the creature's sort of like looming and then it's almost like it like it like speeds up to like turn around and then slows down again and speeds up to move into somewhere. It just it, it felt like a, a sort of an an unusual misfire in, in this film in terms of like uh having
0: the creature feel very real and not like it was just sort of manipulative horror. Yeah, that technique is one of my least favorites. I know exactly what you're talking about. I would say I didn't really notice it here. I think they have a somewhat light touch with it, and it's only, you know, in a small part of the frame. It's not like they go full screen with the the video, so it didn't really make a huge impression, but I think you might be right, and yeah, I see your point. So then he, he takes his gun out. He opens the wardrobe, and he's like, uh, you know, angrily disturbing all the hanging clothes with the gun slashing the hangers off the off their hangers and everything it's just like he's angry that he can't find the thing and he turns away and he closes the doors behind him and that's the great thing like we have established the interdimensionality of this and this sort of schrodinger's cat thing that can go on that you know once he closes those doors again anything could be behind them And it's, it's, it's really cool because he, he bends over, he picks up the camera, he's looking at the, okay, I see it's a very, very, there's, I'm looking at, at least in this instance, there's not the glitchiness that Rich was talking about. Like it doesn't accelerate or decelerate the movement of the, of the figure at all. Um, it's very subtle. It never goes full Blair Witch 2. Yes. Yes. It doesn't go Book of Shadows. (laughs) (laughs) so uh, he, he says who are you and he's 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 mesmerized by this footage and it goes back under the bed and um the bureau is the wardrobe's kind of the doors are sort of moving by itself but meanwhile we see while he's looking at this the doors open behind him and now the sunken chested hideous bald Nosferatu like figure is closing in behind him. And he sees the reflection of it in the gun that's on the floor in the, in the chamber, the, the cylinder of the revolver. And he's about to reach for it while the hand of the creature is reaching for the gun at the same time. And it gets there first. And then he just screams in sudden agony as if with its other hand or, or something, I mean, we can sort of see its face, out of focus behind his face, but it's doing something to him from behind. And, uh, yeah, that is, that is Walter's demise. As far as we know.
2: Well, this whole, this whole sequence plays on the same fear that paranormal activity does in that there is this question of what happens while we're asleep, because you get that same shot of the thing looming over him while he's sleeping. And disappearing into the wardrobe, and I mean it's a it's a very universal fear it's just it's the point when we are at our most vulnerable and you know for a while this thing is is sort of rearranging furniture and and just creating chaos around him. but there's more to it than that. and I think that's i that's just one of those one of those elements in this that even if again it suggests a director or writer that's seen horror films and is is sort of pulling the the things from them that are effective, but he's using them really effectively
0: and this this scene scares the shit out of me well it's primal and universal I mean stuff like the cowering under the sheet you know knowing that something is out there on the other side of it but you know having this childish hope that because you're under a sheet. it it won't pull that back. It won't, it won't attack you because you're not looking at it. All kinds of things that I think, yeah, cross geographical and cultural lines that, yeah, they're not movie cliches. I mean, these are things that are just sort of common to childhood and childish fears of being in in your bedroom alone at night, you know, when you are, are still so young that you feel very vulnerable only kids feel that way John <laughs> <laughs> no I dude I, I get your point man absolutely I mean sometimes like when when Kim is out of town or something and I'm watching horror movies like yeah it's a little bit different going to bed after that so here we cut to this next scene that you referenced earlier which is again in a in a story without obvious chronology this could happen at any point so maybe we'll see some strong clues to help us place it definitively. But I'm talking about where the little boy has the soccer ball and he's in front of Walter's house and a voice that sounds like Walter certainly is saying, you know, what are you doing here? Go away. Don't drink from that water. And that's kind of back to Vic's theory that I'm starting to believe in more and more as we talk about it, that the water somehow is, is important And I am still inclined to believe that that's the real Walter and in the sort of fucked up irony, you know, tragic quality that many stories of this ilk have. And I think this movie might as well. This could be an unintentional thing, at least from the voice's perspective, meaning Walter's, because, of course, the kid backs into the street, distracted and transfixed by the voice and thus um, is hit by the bus.
1: I don't know. I I, I kind of go back to like what what Vic was saying. Like uh, to me, this this feels like it is a, a. I certainly read this scene as directly following the the demise of Walter, or whatever we want to call that demise, or, or what. I don't I don't know if it, it takes him over in part or kills him outright and sort of like takes over his his form or, or what it is. But there is this sense that there is a definite like cause and effect in this film where – I don't know if – like Vic mentioned the idea that it has a plan and I, I never quite get that sense. But you do get the feeling that every opportunity leads to a new opportunity for this evil and that once it takes possession of Walter, it's, it's then looking at, well, how do I sort of like move – like how do I spread um, from here and that this, this, uh, interaction with the kid is, is, is its next move. Maybe just the first successful move. Maybe the dog that we, uh, that we heard about earlier was, a was a failed move in that direction. But anyways, my, my read is that this is, this is definitely like post, uh, Walter's incident with the, with the pale man. And this is the, the pale man
0: extending his infestation on the block. The pale man. I like that. Well, I want to hear what Vic says, but um, I'm going to officially disagree. Um, I've just watched the sequence again, and uh, you can see the eye behind the shades, and it doesn't have the sort of reflective quality that the possessed Walter has when we see him later. And I think that in sort of the classic horror movie, rules or something this would be the only scene in the film beyond with a possible exception of what clara was talking about with voices saying essentially and i'm paraphrasing we will kill you this would be the only time where it just like poses as a human and speaks in a you know normal kind of way like that's not consistent with its mo so to speak and also, it's 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 incredibly Machiavellian to be like saying, "Go away for your own good. Don't drink that water. What are you doing here?" Like th- that would be, haha! I know you're going to back into the street and get hit by a bus going sixty miles an hour on the street. Like that. Just that the, the layer of complexity and almost yeah omnipotence that would be required for that. It, I, it's, I'm not buying it personally. But Vic, what That's do you what think?
1: True. Like I I don't I don't feel like I disagree with the idea that it has a plan. I just feel like one event leads leads to another in in this story, and I feel like the the Walter that's behind the the window or the whatever it is that he's speaking from to me feels like it's a, a Walter in a transitional state. I mean, sure, he doesn't have the same look that he has later when Albrecht sees him, but that's because Albrecht sees him much later. To what, me, what it, is
0: it thinking when it's saying go away, don't be here, don't drink the water?
1: Well, it could be that Walter now has a, has a connection to this force and has an understanding of how it works. So maybe he really is warning the kid away from the water because Walter understands the water is a connection.
0: Well, that I'm okay with. I mean, like I'm not, but but no, I still think, I don't think it happens right after that scene we just saw where Walter gets stabbed or speared or, you know, he's agonized and, um, apparently taken. Like I, I don't think he then comes back from that and and has this scene. Um, I, I, I think that that would seem to be a stretch for me. Like that seems pretty decisive what happened to Walter and for him to have like that much agency or consciousness after what we just saw would mean we're missing another Walter scene where he must get snatched again or, you know, go a lot farther down the road that we don't see. He goes and he lives in the crack in the wall. Yeah, like that, and that is sort of the liminal space connecting both our dimension and their dimension and Walter's house and Juan's house. So,
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: so before we uh, do some spackling with Juan, uh, let's go around the horn and uh, talk about uh, our beverages. I am drinking a Hot Bullet Double IPA, which unfortunately I had already cracked. But Vic, I think you can... Give us a little theatricality as you tell us what is in front of you. I'll, I will do my best to
2: not spill beer on my computer. Oh, nice. You're very yeah. good at that. That is a, uh, a flying
0: dog raging bitch Belgian IPA. Wow. And some fine Foley work. I'm sure it's delicious as well. And, uh, Rich, what, uh, what flavor of LaCroix is it tonight? Is it Pamplemousse or what do you got? I do love
1: Pample, juice, but uh no, I'm I'm keeping things uh pretty uh pretty tame and domesticated over here. I just have some Trader Joe's Chardonnay in front of me at the moment. Nice. And uh you know, maybe I might I might move to a stone in a little bit um if I feel like I'm gonna be able to keep it
2: together through the rest of the podcast. <laughs> There's no shame in Chardonnay, Rich. <laughs> That's also also the title of my singer-songwriter debut album, There's No Shame, Chardonnay.
0: That that has a real ring to it, Vic. Absolutely. Nice. All kinds of sound effects going on there. All right. Well, uh, speaking of sounds, that's exactly what Juan heard interrupting his home wall repair, and uh, it was the sound of his neighbor getting killed by a bus. Um, He's a little boy, like... Would you say six or seven, Vic? You guys you know more about kid ages than I do. Six or seven seems about right. Okay. So everyone comes running out into the street and this is pretty realistic and horrible the way it all kind of plays and it's subtle. We don't get a, you know, close up of the kid's jaw being ripped in half like the orphanage or something. But he's lying in a giant puddle of blood face down, and it's sort of discreetly framed so you don't see shoulders or head. But you see all the reactions. It's a great angled shot of all these neighbors coming up in just, you know, sheer shock and horror, uh, including the kid's friend, who we'll see again later. And Juan starts calling for Alicia, Alicia, um, which is the kid's mom, who we'll also get to know a little bit along the way. And yeah, this is just a nightmare. And one of the things that I think really resonates with me is it cuts from that to the sort of municipal cleanup crew um, power washing the giant slick of blood from the street. And this, um, this resonates with me on a, on a couple of levels. One, just sort of the, the cruel banality of society and life just having to go on and that, like, if you or I or our loved ones were to meet a similar fate, Some guy would come with a power sprayer and wash it up. And within a period of hours, um, that street would be like, we, we never lived and died there, uh, which just kind of hits you on all kinds of levels. The movie captures that anyway. uh, Then also I have to say that there's an anecdote uh, Mike Kuchak and I, Mike used to be on this podcast. Uh, we were hanging around in Venice, getting drunk and watching horror movies some night in my thirties. And we came upon a, actually it was basically my street. It was the street that my apartment complex lived, uh, looked out on and they were, they were power washing blood out of the gutter, but it was just a like the gutter right around the storm drain was full of blood and there was somebody there. This was at night and I don't know, a neighbor passerby and like we were sort of noticing this and this person said, oh yeah, you know, some guy got hit by a car here a couple hours ago. And it was like, oh yeah, someone, someone lost their life on this street that we, you know, drunkenly stagger home on every night coming back from our favorite happy hour spot, um, you know, Saturday after Saturday for a period of 10 years. And yeah, just sort of the weird fragility of of life and just society and nature's way of quickly papering over whatever happened and and going on with, with life.
1: Well, I guess speaking of how it gets papered over, it, if you if you play out the, the chronology of this I do find it very odd that this event happens and and Juan and his wife seem like they're very involved in it they're, they' they go to the funeral they're, they're they're the first to alert Alicia when this event happens but then like if you want to follow the chronological timeline of the movie then the next time that we see them would be when they're in the kitchen he's like, hey remember when we hit that dog the other day. Well, guess what? It's still alive. Like he, he, has, he has a jovial story about something else with the car. I'm not saying that they're directly connected. It's just a, it feels like an odd tonal shift. Like, again, the, like the, the bringing up the story of the dog you hit with your car um, when just a couple of days ago, you know, a, a close friend of yours had their kid mowed down by a bus um, feels like a, a disconnect.
0: Mm hmm. I mean, I think you can explain that just in the sense that we don't know. Close friend might be uh, a stretch. I mean, she does say, uh, try to get some sleep to Alicia. Clara does. I'll stop by tomorrow. But I mean, like there's sort of different lines between like if this was somehow the three of us in some way or your neighbor, right, where, you know, the neighbor, you know, the kid doesn't mean you're like really friends doesn't mean you they're
1: they're like by her side during the funeral. I'm watching the
0: scene. Yeah. I'm watching the scene, but it doesn't, I don't, I don't necessarily get the sense that like they moved in like to the same neighborhood because they're lifelong friends or like, it's just like that you have a relationship because you live next door. I'm not saying that you don't, your point isn't valid at all, but There's also, like, when you get to a certain level of distance, you get back to normalcy a lot more quickly than if it was your kid, obviously, you know. So if if it was, like, four or five days later, I'm not totally sure that I don't buy one, you know— Talking about the dog the way he does, like it's not a big problem for me. I guess there's a long way of saying
1: it. I'm not. I'm not saying it's a big problem either. It just, but just something about it. Like we were, we were pondering earlier, like why is that story in the in the movie? And maybe someone has, a, has still has a theory. They're they're waiting to break out on that. Um, but it is weird that they specifically chose to give him a story about a dog being hit by a car um, when he also had like another traumatic. Uh, vehicle incident in his like very recent past, so I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Maybe there's actually a very good reason for it. Maybe it means something
2: that I have not deciphered. <laughs> like that he's like, well, the dog came back to life, you know. is <laughs> <laughs> isn't bad. Maybe, maybe Nino will be fine. Yeah. Also. I uh, just to jump back a little bit. I did we talk before about the fact that the bus driver seems to get off the bus, look at the kid, and then just
0: run away? We did, <laughs> but that that's very striking. I'm glad you brought it up. Like I struggle with that. Like I watched it, and I'm like, is that? Could that just be a passenger? But no, I think you're right. I think like the bus driver is so horrified by this that he just takes off.
2: Well, I wonder. I mean, my there there are a couple of allusions to like. Can you imagine what would happen if a prosecutor got involved in this? I wonder if that bus driver is fucking scared. Mm-hmm. Like if he's like, holy shit, I'm going to jail. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know. Again, I don't know anything about the legal system in uh, in Argentina.
0: But God, you're such a Philistine.
2: Like- Jesus. What are you even doing on this podcast? To- <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, I'm, I'm here to mention uh, – Alejandro Gonzalez in your movies. and that's movies. <laughs> you know, um, I
0: asked that each of us do a modicum of research for this podcast. And you would think that, you know, just a little light reading about the legal system in Argentina would be <laughs> de rigueur for a podcast of this type.
2: Well, it seems, I mean, it actually does seem sort of important. Like it is this specter hovering over everything that comes up with Funya's later is like – can you imagine if a if a prosecutor got involved with this? But yeah, like that was kind of my impression was that this bus driver was like, "Holy shit, they're going to throw me in a gulag for the next forty years. I got to get out of here." I just, you know, I don't know. But it is a it's a weird detail that he just he seems to get on the bus and just bolt on foot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> At least he doesn't I, just do a huge U turn in the bus and take off like
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: and <laughs> keep making stops. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I do think that as a, I think that when you're a bus driver, I do think that probably like, taking out an eight year old is like is, is pretty. I think that's pretty high on the list. That's the fun. Yeah, I think <laughs> don't want to happen. Yeah. Oh, well,
0: God. dude, he was going you know at least 45, 50 miles an hour on a reg- residential street, so he, he's pretty much in trouble right there. True.
2: Could have been coked out of his mind, guys. We don't know. There's no backstory of The Bus Driver.
0: I want to see that movie. <laughs> and we could point out one of us that wanted to, you know, shit on this movie. Not saying that any of us have an axe to grind, but the the cliché of the uh, sudden someone getting hit by. Usually it's a bus, but it doesn't have to be um, because, you know, the bus – like completely soundlessly closes this distance and is yeah. hurtling along. I mean, that is a bona fide cliche. And I always go back to the first time I noticed seeing it was in the first, uh, final destination final movie. Place. But, but by now, like I'm, I can sense those coming usually a mile away. Like even Kim and I were watching something. It's even permeated well beyond the horror genre. We were watching, you know, some show. I wish I could think of what it was. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, that, I could tell from the the staging of the shot, this person's about to get hit by a car, and sure enough, it happened. They get, like, wiped out by the speeding bullet of some vehicle.
1: Yeah, there's that classic, like, combination of shots that you get from the interior of a car right before a car accident. Yes, I know.
0: Yeah, that's the other cliche.
1: Yeah, it's it's like profile from the passenger seat looking at the driver so you can't see what's coming. And the driver is looking away from the road at the camera, like it's just like you could. It's always telegraphed,
0: and then suddenly you you see the other car to t-bone the car suddenly like appear in the driver's side uh, window. Yeah, yeah you, always, you always get to see it right before the uh, the the character does right, and then the collision happens. Yeah, the the sort of grammar of these sequences, both of these types of car-related mayhem scenes. Has to be subverted at this point. If you if you go with like the basic playbook, it's it's a total groaner. So
2: I was gonna say ad- adaptation. Uh, the Spike Jones film has an excellent example of that. Uh, it's actually nope. very well executed. But I would also just say this is another one of those things where like, are you going to tell me that Damien Hrgna has never seen Final Destination? Like he's pulling, he's he again. He has a a complete cinematic language for horror films, and he 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 executes it extraordinarily well. Like it's not, I'm not saying that as a knock on him. Yeah. Like this guy's this guy's seen people get hit by a bus out of nowhere before, and he he pulls that particular card out of his deck and plays it very
0: well here. Yeah, I don't think this one is telegraphed. I really don't. You know, I think I think it is well executed. It's not. Like there aren't the dead giveaways, and it definitely doesn't. You know, I'm in the tank for this movie, but it definitely does not detract from my enjoyment of the film. But I'm saying, like, if you wanted to be a real stickler, that's something you could pull out.
2: I will say too, though, just to to, to jump back to what we were saying about uh, Juan and and uh, Clara's relationship with Alicia. It's a mystery. Right. Like it is something this is the only scene where it, it, it sort of comes up as what's their role in this and how well do they know her and everything else. It's a it's a little strange the way that he plays that. It's one of the places where I would have liked a little more backstory. You could have fleshed out a little bit in the somewhere else in the film. Just some connection to, to sort of understand it.
0: Well, I actually they, have a problem with the Funes uh, Alicia relationship, but we'll get to oh, that. Oh yeah, let's get let's get to that. <laughs> <laughs> like I have a full on problem with it, but yeah, right before we meet Funes, we 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 meet uh, Yano, where he gets a call from Funes, and this is where the movie starts to. Um, which I think is kind of ballsy, we're 23 and a half minutes into the movie. Now, in a sense, it's like, okay, here are the characters you're actually going to follow for the rest of this movie and sort of identify with that are going to drive the plot with their decision-making. Yano is in bed asleep. It's the middle of the night, but his old colleague gives him a call and says, you know, I've got this you know, situation. You've got to come out right now. You know, I apologize for the time. I wouldn't call you if it wasn't important but, you know, can you, can you come out? And he's like, yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, I will. And this is kind of a classic setup. And he says four days ago, there was an accident, a 10 year old kid died outside his house. So yeah, we know at least like there's four days of events in the story separating the sequence we just saw. And I would argue that probably a lot of the stuff we saw before that sequence um, took place in those four days.
2: The the whole movie seems like it takes place over the course of about a week,
0: right? Yeah. Well, I think they say either in the first interview with uh, Juan behind bars or, or later that, like, a week to two weeks is the time frame where everything happens. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of it happens in, like, four or five days. So, yeah, they send a car out to get him. Yano comes out to the house and we get something that is one of the great mysteries. Oh yeah, even before that, one of the great mysteries is like all the footprints and handprints on the house. But even before we get to that, we play with the time frame again. Um, we're not quite to the linear part because we cut from that sequence to Alicia, Alicia um, smoking in her kitchen and this is pre the little boy showing up. So we're we're going back in time briefly and this is her just sort of devastated, you know, dealing with her conventional grief <laughs> over losing her son, but um she goes to the front door and I'm getting ahead of it the plot because this scene really takes a long time <laughs> to play, but she's hearing something, which I, I, unfortunately I can't hear cause I'm, you know, can't hear the soundtrack and talk to you guys, but she says, you know, what is it? Who is it? And I guess, you know, there's somebody at the door. Maybe they ring the bell. I don't recall, but she opens the door. We see the handprints, these filthy handprints up against the wall. And we are about to get a very subtle shot as her haunted shaded, dark circled eyes look around and she sees the muddy footprints outside of her porch and then the silhouette, the very recognizable, uh, shadow cast of the little boy just out of frame, which, you know, we can assume she looks at and it's, it's her dead son standing on her doorstep. So that, that, Brings me back to the question I was going to raise to you guys. So we see all of these footprints and handprints going up the wall and onto the roof of the house as though he were to gain access through a skylight or, you know, an open window or, or, you know, pull back the shingles or something. But no, she lets him right in the front door. So what's all the climbing around Spider-Man style on the house all about?
2: It's just for effect, but it's brilliant. <laughs> it's one of my it's honestly it's one of my favorite touches is the especially when, when Albrecht points it out to Yano uh because he hasn't noticed it, which I find sort of interesting. It it just lends an alien quality to everything. I don't it's, know. I I really like it as a detail. It it's both brilliant and like a a
1: little silly. The image itself is both, like, kind of cool from, like, a haunted house point of view and also seems like a, a prank that a kid has has
0: played. I agree with Rich. I think it's a little over the top. I mean, like, these are really well-defined prints, you know? They're, they're not subtle. The fact that essentially no one comments on this uh, or even seems to notice it, Vic, as you were alluding to, it's a little far fetched to me because it's not. Um, it's not easy to miss. I think so. It's, just, it's not. It's not even close to the weirdest thing
2: about what's going on.
0: I would just think you're as maybe. a cop, you know, you're like, okay, so. You know, this would indicate that that gained entry. Somebody, you know, I guess because we know it's a dead little boy, gained entry from the roof or something. But 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 no, Alicia just let him in. So, uh,
1: I, mean, I, I I gotta say that Funes overall does not give me the impression of like a super invested cop. <laughs> <laughs> Like he seems like he got the job from like drinking with the right guy at the
2: local bar. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I have I actually have some I have some questions that I think will be relevant to this a little bit, but I, I think we should get forward to a little a little bit further.
0: Okay, yeah, lots of lots of questions, but so um, a cop that we meet very briefly but kind of figures throughout the whole film is the guy who drives Iano uh, to the house, and we're in the small hours of the of the night, which is something that a lot of scenes in this movie seem to take place in those, you know, the most quiet hours um, of uh, on the clock. And this is one of them. And uh, they arrive, and uh, we meet Funya's for the first time, who, I've said it before, is kind of the stand-in for the traditional protagonist in a film like this, you know, the jaded, cynical, flawed, you know almost on the verge of retirement cop who we think is gonna kind of guide us through the investigation and be our hero and and I think in some ways he fulfills those functions, but as rich pointed out yeah he's he's really uh, somewhat of an ersatz hero, I think it would be fair to say, so uh yeah, we're about to go into the house and and meet this thing this dead little boy but i love this little interchange where funyas asks yano nothing really scares you right and just this very like wise old man response from yano he's like he goes you never know let's see (laughs) and shrugs (laughs) so we see that there's lots of dirt on I guess grave soil on Alicia's face as she's being interviewed by a female cop in the living room. I guess, you know, she's embraced the the child is sort of the implication and you wonder like what kind of mobility or agency the child evidences to Al- Alicia.
1: Yeah. But- you don't really get much information by, by that way. I mean, like she never really speaks, right. At least not in this sequence. So you don't – well, I mean, yeah, she talks a little bit when she returns later in the film. True. Um, true. But, uh, yeah, you never really get any of the story filled in in terms of what happened between when he knocked on the door and, and where we catch up with her now.
0: Yeah, there's many, many gaps in the narrative, but maybe that's, again, one of the benefits of the storytelling style is that we sort of become accustomed to the jumping around. So uh yeah, we're we're still kind of getting the build up to this where uh Funyaz is talking about like I was at the funeral, I was at the wake, and we sort of established this relationship that pre-existing relationship that he has with the mother. And th- yeah, this is one of my problems with the film. Might as well bring it up here, is that like apparently they were dating for some period of time, but detective or I don't know if he's a lieutenant or whatever. The cop, Funes, does not, Commissario is his title. Um, he does not seem to have any relationship with the boy whatsoever. So, okay, maybe, you know, their relationship, his relationship with Alicia predates the birth of the child six years ago or whatever it was. But he barely ever interacts with Alicia directly. Like, they seem to have. The way that on screen it's depicted, you would think they have no history whatsoever. I mean, yes, they have a conversation later and he gets in her car and, you know, there's there's something we'll get to. But, like, there does not seem to be any warmth or intimacy or history or communication between these characters. And he's usually, like, standing across the room from her. Like, he never touches her. It's just an interesting... Lack of empathy and compassion that he evidences towards his ex, who's just lost her son.
3: Yeah, and he,
1: he implies that it was a very close relationship. Yeah, too.
2: if he didn't, if he didn't tell you they were in a relationship, nothing else that happens in the film would make you think that they were. However, this is my question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump at a tiny bit, John. Don't get mad at me.
0: Oh, I might, I might, Vic. <laughs> When
2: he is telling Yano about their relationship, and we were in a, we were in a relationship, it was pretty serious. Blah blah blah. That is when the dead boy knocks the milk over, which made me wonder: Is Funya's the boy's father?
1: I actually i had i had a similar note, but another interpretation is that she's a single mother. Was he an affair?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be. That's another way to look at it. I think those are both excellent points. At least they're in the general part of the film we're talking about. <laughs> but um, yeah. the thing, my immediate response to both of those thoughts are are this: I think there we should look at the spilling of the milk. I think you might be onto something there. But I absolutely believe that Rich might be onto something in the sense that it could be that. Funes did not want to be this kid's dad and he was a, a a relationship with a single mother that I didn't ultimately work out and he never bonded with the, with her son from another, um, with another father. So yeah, that could be right and that he like avoided the patronage somehow, but I think I actually lean towards Rich's reading because he really does not, it doesn't seem that he's in denial of his relationship with the boy. It seems like he just literally has no relationship with the boy at all. And it it could be that they had more of a casual relationship that he kept under kind of strict. He kept strict distance between him and her her son um, during that period of time and had no interest in being a stepfather to the, to the boy. Oh, of course, you lean towards Bridges' explanation. <laughs> Bastard. barking up the wrong tree again, Vic.
2: Well, well, but either way, I mean, the, the, what we're all—I feel like what we're all looking for are explanations for him not noticing the footprints and the handprints, and like he seems distracted, like he seems. Like his emotional connection to Alicia is affecting his detecting abilities as a, a commissar.
0: But. <laughs> well, I can't well, tell if it's that or the fact that he's never faced the supernatural before.
2: Okay.
1: It's, it's that and his condition. You know about his condition, Vic, right?
2: <laughs>
0: he, he, wait, he has a
2: condition? <laughs> what, what kind of condition does he have,
1: right? I don't know. It's, it's never explicitly said, but there is a condition. And he'll how, tell, how, how does, it, how does it affect the story,
2: Rich? <laughs> Sorry, we'll get there um yeah we we but, definitely will get there, um, but no, but I'm just saying like it's this is this is one of the first elements where it's actually a little bit like Juan and Clara's relationship with Alicia, where it's like okay, there's some there's there's something going on here, but you're not giving us all the all the pieces. And it it feels less like a secret and more like something that isn't thought through completely.
0: Yeah. I think this is more on that side of the ledger than, you know, all this well-defined subtly teased out backstory that we, you know, the answers are there, but we kind of have to make the connections ourselves. There's just sort of weird weirdness that, doesn't really connect to any psychological explanation.
2: Narratively, what is the payoff? What does what is added to the story
0: by Funia's having a relationship with Alicia? That's the question. Like, why is that even here? Why isn't he not just here because he's a cop dealing with a weird case?
1: Basically all, all, all you get is the payoff of like the, the end of their story, right? Like you, you have like a little bit of like an arc for them where it's like she comes back and sort of confronts him with where he, he needs her and then she wants to confront him with what he did to her son. And you know, like they have a, they have an established relationship later in the film that I think wouldn't have played as well if he was just a cop.
0: That's a good point. Like would he have crossed paths with them again in the same way? If he had no relationship with them other than the, you know, I just met you in this very cold professional sense.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't even call it a good point. I call it an okay point. (laughs) You know,
0: (laughs) I mean, that's like, no, but I think you're explaining it is what I'm saying.
2: Yeah. She just shows up and fails to help him. And then, you know, and, and he, but
0: he wouldn't have sought her out for help if they didn't have a personal connection.
2: I'm not sure that's true. Like he had a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. And he's begging, and he's begging like she, if they had not had a relationship and he had begged her for help, like all that basically does
0: is, is give her a reason to say,
2: eh, maybe, you know, and then you have the weird thing with him. The
0: Well, you know what it seems like Vic on the surface, like just as screenwriters, I would say that there was probably more to this subplot or relationship thread and it was cut and now it seems more unnecessary because of that like missing element that isn't here like like Matthew Fox in World War Z <laughs> exactly
3: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i see you're right i mean that could be it because the way that it plays now is just a a cursory attempt to start to develop characters 23 minutes into a movie. You know what's interesting? Structurally, what this sort of reminds me of is uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Mm. In that we have one story for the first 23 minutes of the you know for the first act of the movie and then we introduce the actual protagonist and we have to shoehorn in a bunch of conflict and character development and stuff in order to to attempt to invest us in what's happening in the rest of the movie because this doesn't this relationship doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pay off in any narrative sense. Even her eventual suicide is a non-event. It's like, it's, it's like we were talking about. It all happens off screen.
0: Well, you know what this movie doesn't remind me of? It's, it's Halloween H2O because that movie is shit. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the rest of this
2: podcast thinking of the way in which those two movies connect. So when I get there,
0: uh, everybody take a drink. And uh, yeah, I applaud you in advance if you pull that off. All right.
1: Love it, the the uh, apparently the the touchstones of this podcast are like we it really hit its zenith at Halloween H two O and the two Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Yeah. Like those those movies get referenced, uh, and and maybe Halloween Resurrection as well. Like apparently that was like the high water mark of horror in terms of this podcast. It all, all roads lead back to that period of Halloween films.
0: We, we rarely get through a podcast without referencing one of those films. You're right. <laughs> oh, the touchstone films of this pod. Yeah. So now I'm in the scene where the milk is about to get spilled and this is a translation issue. Yano says, so, you know, this woman and he says, yes, very, (laughs) 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 um, I would love to, to know a better translation of that, but you get the, you get the gist. Biblically, I think is what they're looking for. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So he says, we had a really nice relationship. And then that is when the glass goes over.
2: Next time, do some tinctures and then watch the movie. See if that shit starts to click. <laughs>
0: <laughs> bravo. Bravo. Yeah. That, is, that is brilliant, man. Yeah, I think you're onto something there.
2: It's, it certainly suggests, whatever your interpretation, that there's some connection between his relationship with her
0: and the boy that, that triggered the boy to move suddenly. It certainly seems like the, you know, it's like Herbert West breaking the pencils during (laughs) his teacher's presentation
3: about brain death. Yeah.
0: He's, yeah. He's disagreeing with what, what's being said.
1: Uh, (laughs) I think you you definitely do get the impression that the boy does not
0: like him. Yeah. And they, they do have another, I wouldn't call it a confrontation, but their paths cross. So yeah, this is where Yano takes charge in a very noticeable way. Like he's he's the sort of like retired forensics guy, and he's telling this this, you know, more traditional cop exactly how he needs to play this. And yeah, it kind of puts Yano in a in a heroic light. You know, he's talking about the prosecutor's office getting involved and you know what will happen. Alicia will end up in the madhouse and uh, given these circumstances, she 'd probably be there for years, and he 's like, "I believe we should find a way to avoid that don't you think and uh Fuñes is just kind of nodding and saying, "Well, what do I tell my people like he he 's completely reliant on uh Iano to explain this and get him out of it and get Alicia out of it there 's nothing really here to suggest that Fuñes is a particularly good cop
1: no he he 's never actually solved a problem,
0: no <laughs> I wonder what his best day on the job was, you know, like is he just over the hill or was he like infinitely worse ten years ago? <laughs> I mean, he certainly seems like cynical and jaded, like he's seen a lot like he he's had the benefit of experience, but
1: that's uh, I mean awesome. I, I, i'd say I'd say not much happens in this town, but i but I can tell you that like within thirty minutes you can get guys to pressure wash blood off your street so <laughs> I don't know. I
2: feel like he's probably he's had to have seen some shit at some point. (laughs) He's never he's never concerned with figuring out what happened. It's only with what do we do?
0: Yeah. Well, he just wants to resolve this as quickly as possible.
2: Exactly. How do we get this to go away? And that's and that's exactly what Yano gives him. This is we're going to make this go away. Here's how we do it. Get some cement what?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We need two bags of cement. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And then he's like, well, you don't want this to happen again. Right. So yeah, it's the next day now, or at least dawn, like a few hours have passed and all the police are still here and we're still, you know, talking to Alicia and she's like, don't take him away. Don't take my baby away. And across the street, there's Albrecht taking pictures of Walter Carbajal's house and Yano sees this, and um, it presumably Dr. Albrecht decided to show up after calling, and Walter wasn't answering his phone, and now she's going to ring the intercom. Someone is there, but again, they, they don't speak to her, and it's, uh, it's creepy. It reminds me of our point
3: with yeah. the
0: waste
2: over the radio. I mean that that radios are always weird places for the supernatural to sort of intercede.
0: Yeah, like you know, these sort of hijacked forms of communication that they can access more readily than directly speaking to you, I guess.
2: And this is also this is another one of those moments where the storylines sort of intersect, right? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden where we're reconnecting with Walter's story and starting
0: to see the ways in which these things might be connected. I happened to watch, and I mentioned this to Vic, I happened to watch Host last night, which is the pandemic Zoom meeting uh, horror film, and one of the thoughts that were expressed by the sort of guide to these characters that end up being terrorized by a demon, wouldn't you know? But uh, she says that any for, you know forms of technology like the internet are easily accessible by spirits and whatnot, you know, as, as a medium, like it's actually the, the, I can't really quote it exactly, but she makes the argument that the internet is, is like a Ouija board, you know, it's like a great conduit. And I bought that, you know, so it's an interesting idea to explore. And I guess that's kind of what's going on with the intercom. But uh, yeah, they have this conversation, this very cordial colleagues conversation where Yano comes over and introduces himself to Albrecht and talks about attending her conferences about paranormal activity and metasymbiosis and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they're kind of comparing notes and realizing that they're, they're here, they're both here on cases that might be connected and without really telling her anything specific, Yano lures her across the street to his case. And I sort of flag, I, I love his sales pitch to come over. He's like,
1: he's like, it's, it's really interesting. It really is. Like, yeah. he's just he's so friendly about it. Like,
0: like you're going to love this tea. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> and that's about as specific as, as he gets. Uh, yeah. I, I got a kick out of that. But, yeah, real quick, something that I'd I'd forgotten to say about the whole, um, you know, the footprints and the handprints and all that is that the corpse doesn't seem very mobile right now, let alone agile. So it's just, like, why did he bother going up there if he didn't go in that way? I don't know. I don't want to get bogged down in that. but
2: Well, I would say one of the mistakes that the movie makes – Uh, to to jump ahead just a bit to show the corpse move at all Mm -hmm. that everything else that, that, that the corpse seems to have done is implied. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's, what's really creepy to me is the idea that I'm looking at, you know, what seems to be a child in, in rigor mortis, you know, in front of a bowl of cereal and to imagine him crawling on the ceiling, like the old woman in the exorcist part three, is
0: terrifying to me.
3: Well, that's a really
0: good point because I think that if you had not ever shown him move at all, my implication, my reading would be seeing the footprints and, and all that is that he's actually really limber and terrifyingly mobile when he wants to be. We just never see it. But then somehow it undermines that when we see him like as this creaky, um, you know, stiff, very limited thing. And then it's like, it just becomes hard to reconcile. Like, okay, well, why then does he seem l- like he is very um, incapable of doing stuff? And then you show evidence that he did all these things. It just, it becomes like sort of a, I, I don't know how to reconcile it, but I think if they had played it just completely, he never moves as you're sort of implying. And then you show evidence that he can totally move like a lot in sort of terrifying ways. I think that would have worked better.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a rare misstep in this movie that, but they, we should not have ever seen him move even because it's even in that scene, the kid is looking at him and like, you could have just cut to the kid's face and not seen it move, but seen the kid react to him moving and gotten the same effect without sort of
0: spoiling what you, what you'd set up with it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And then it doesn't become a problem with this. Oh, he climbed up the wall and was on the roof and stuff. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. So briefly here, the shoe is on the other foot where, um, is telling, uh, He's telling Yano, "Hey, we can't move like the corpse now. It's like daylight; people are going to see uh, what we're doing." And they start kind of arguing about you know how many people are around. And, and meanwhile, she's taking pictures of the handprints and stuff, the Blair Witch handprints on the wall of the house. I just,
1: thought, I, I one little thing I want to throw mm-hmm. out there: there's no implication that that anyone was thinking about this, but I. I noticed as I was watching that the house is full of mirrors. Um, like all the decor on the walls in this home are, are mirrors. And I was reminded of um, – I saw that uh, that Irish horror film uh, The Hole in the Ground not too long ago. And there, there's a scene in it in which they explain this, this tradition that I, I guess goes beyond that film – which is that uh, when, when someone dies and you have a wake that you have to cover all the mirrors in a home like with blankets because it is uh, – it's to hide the physical body from the soul.
0: So, mm-hmm. it, so, so the uh, tradition goes. So that it would- leaves the body, right? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't get come back to its body. There's something kind of creepy about the reason
3: for that.
1: Yeah, there's, there's something to that, but it's like I, I don't know if there's the 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 connection of like the the mirrors in her home and the fact that the boys returned there. Um, but it struck me as a, a semi deliberate choice of some kind. That be. is, rich the
2: the act of covering mirrors is part of sitting shiva, uh, which is part of the the Jewish funeral tradition.
3: Right.
2: Played a, played a big role in a, a screenplay that I wrote, so I spent a lot of time researching it. But doesn't it
0: have to do with like the reason you cover that is so they they don't come back in some way,
2: right? Isn't that part of it? No, it's it's actually it's 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 much more vague than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something to do of, of with basically it's one of those things that nobody kind of knows why they still do it. Um, much of what I saw referred to like. Trying to remove your physical sense of self and remind yourself that you are a spiritual being and and not just a, a you know a, a physical being and that kind of thing. You're, you're not a meat puppet. Well, I was. I that was where I started to go with it, and then I stopped because that was uh, not in keeping with the Jewish tradition of of sitting shiva. But you know, yeah, meat puppet, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, it's it's definitely yeah. there's a lot to unpack there, but there is.
2: It's, it's an interesting. I didn't. I did not notice that, Rich. And again, that's one of those things that I will look for in subsequent viewings. That that continues to give this movie depth.
1: And, and, and like to, to your point, like like I said, there's. I kept looking for an implication that that was uh, on purpose, and I never found anything. But with this movie, it could also just be a collective. Like this is just someone who's sort of like studied like various forms of. You know of of lore, you know, and is and is kind of mixing them all together in this film, which which is is the really the overall effect of this movie too. Is that it? It feels very like sort of mixed media horror in the sense that like you know there's there's not necessarily a specific focus.
0: Yeah, yeah. Back to the mythology thing. Like it's not quite Lovecraft. It's not quite aliens. It's not quite demons. It's but it sort of creates its own mysterious amalgamation of all these things, but it sort of plays cards from each of those decks. But anyway, at this point, uh, Yano takes charge and he's telling, you know, Funya's exactly what to do. He's a figure of authority and competence. He knows how to handle this shit right down to the public relations component. He points out that Funya's hasn't slept and then Funyas is obviously checking out. He wants to get to his retirement without any drama. He wants Yano to get him through this. Yano's giving orders, but he ends with por, por favor. <laughs> and Funyas has no problem with that. And as we alluded to before, Yano even thinks of getting two bags of concrete to make sure the kid doesn't climb out of this grave again. He's got all the angles covered. Meanwhile, Funyas does not. He seems out of his element and appreciative of Yano's so, like you, like Yano's approach to this is so utilitarian compared
1: to what we're used to seeing. He, he's not really concerned with like is the kid dead? Is the kid not dead? It's just like look, the, the kid is moving around. He's not going to stop moving around. We just need to focus on not making a nuisance. Yeah. Like we don't need to we don't need to cross over into the spirit realm or figure out what it is that's wrong with him or what it is that he wants us to accomplish so that his spirit can be free. Like just get some concrete and bury him and <laughs> stop so bothering us.
0: Yeah. It's so pragmatic. Yeah. He, he does ask the kid like flat out earlier, like, what do you want? Why did you come to visit us? But yeah, he doesn't seem overly fixated on that.
2: Well, but there's something too about this scene that I think is setting us up for what comes later, which is that with all of these guys, and even in the, I think the interview scenes with Juan, they seem really knowledgeable and so you get this sense that like, once Yano and and Albrecht and and Rosenthal, like once they get involved, like everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. They know what's going on. They got they got all these fancy tools, and he knows what to do. There's a there's a dead kid in the thing, and he's like, all right, look, this is what you're gonna do. Do this. Do this. Get get some concrete. Put him in there. Like I agree, it's awesome that it's so purely utilitarian and not focused on like what might be causing it. But it is also he's giving you a false sense of confidence that you are now with people who can handle this.
0: Yeah, the, the adults are in the room now. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh the other characters were hapless, you know, Walter and Juan and Clara and everybody was like way out of their depth and even, you know, Funyas. But but these investigators are are gonna take care of this shit. Like they We've got the right people for the job, and again, it kind of is becoming a more traditional narrative here, where they're going to find solutions, and they—they they don't. The next big thing here um, is where Yano, and this was my low light when we were giving highlights and lowlights, is where Yano starts telling uh, these anecdotes from his professional career to Albrecht. And the first story feels somewhat relevant. He's talking about a corpse that he was autopsying that suddenly revives and grabs his arm. It's a corpse with 14 bullet holes to the head. That must have been a low-caliber bullet if there was any head left. But okay, we do have a kid corpse moving in this house. So there's a clear parallel between the anecdote and what's happening. People who have been dead for a long time might briefly show signs of quote-unquote life. That's why Yano's bringing it up. And he says, I thought I was just stressed out, but it happened again. Now it's an old man who actually says something to him after being dead for two days. We don't find out exactly what he said. And it, I found it really weird that Yano immediately calls the man's family, this dead man in his morgue for two days. What was that call like? I wonder. Like two days after he died, he he's like, "Oh hi, yeah. Um, your father. Uh, he briefly came back and told me something."
1: Yano does he? I, I don't know exactly what the line is, but he does come around at the end and he says something that indicates the ghost came back because. He, or I'm sorry, the, the old man came back because he blamed the son for his death.
0: Right, right. Yeah. It's kind of ties up the knot in the sense that he might be saying, we, Yana, you know, start talking about how we shouldn't meddle. We should just let these things go sometimes, is exactly what he says. So then I was wondering, what point is he trying to make? I mean, he was just doing his job as a coroner. There's no meddling. So, They're meddling here somehow. I mean, he brought Albrecht in. She wasn't going to meddle if he didn't do that. So why does she need a no meddling speech from him? And then I was like wondering, did he meddle in the first case by calling the family? Like, was that the problem? He shouldn't have called the family because then he provides the insight that the old man blamed the son for his death, as Rich just mentioned. I just don't know where he's going. If this is a translation issue, or like his whole point is maybe we shouldn't meddle. Well, what the fuck are you guys doing if not meddling? And you brought her in to meddle, right? Well, wait. I have
2: have two points to make here. The first is that in the middle of this speech, while I was watching it, super high, and this is at my old house, I heard a sound outside. And a raccoon, what I hope to God was a raccoon, like scurried past the window and scared the fucking shit out of me. Wow. Right. Like I had to pause the movie and like go in another room and catch my breath before I could continue watching it. It was deeply upsetting. And I just want to point out to this movie's credit, this was during a scene that was broad daylight and just two people sitting around talking. So I, I found that particularly effective and I will never watch that scene again without thinking about that.
0: Wow. Well, my, my low light for the movie, folks. <laughs> the raccoon? Uh, no, the raccoon would have made the scene infinitely better. Yeah, the raccoon with the raccoon's <laughs>
2: highlight. Um, but, um, no, I, the thing that I think, so we it, because we just talked about this, that he's not interested in why the boy came back and we're not going to deal with you know what was going on between him and his mother? Or was Funyaz his father? Or was Fuñez mm. an affair that his mother had or something? His his kind of point is that we don't need to meddle in those things. Like we just need to deal with the practical things that are in front of us. Like I feel like he's explaining the the reason that he's taken the tact that he has on it. Which is what we were we were just sort of talking about. Yeah. I don't know. That makes
0: sense I mean that makes sense, but how does that where do we go with that from here? You know, does that is that relevant at any point after this in the movie? It doesn't seem like there's a no meddling policy (laughs) at any point after this point in the film. So I, I just don't see like how that philosophy is being tested or questioned or argued with or proven to be right or wrong. It just feels irrelevant based on the actions that he takes and the other characters take from this point further.
2: I think on some level, he's trying to establish a level of professional respect with Albrecht. She is the, she is the the preeminent, Parapsychology person in Argentina, and so I think he he wants to sort of lay out his credentials. Look, I've seen some shit, and I've and I've learned some things from it. But I also think they are when it comes to exploring this, they're not trying to change anything, they're not trying to exercise anything, they're just trying to collect evidence. Like it's I, this almost lays out the the philosophy of ghost hunting. We're not in this to meddle. We're not trying to right wrongs. We're not trying to act as providence. We are just here to observe and, you know, make files about the things that we see.
0: If you're going to the extent, the lengths that are necessary, like we devote this whole dialogue scene to that point, wouldn't you think that we'd have some kind of referendum on the rightness or wrongness or efficacy of that approach. And you would have to conclude based on what happens to these characters that I guess maybe they should have been meddling. I don't know because it doesn't work out for anybody.
2: Well, John, I'm not, I'm not arguing with that. What you're, what you're pointing at is what I would say is, is the flaw in this section of the movie, right? Is that it doesn't really develop narratively. There's not a thematic Quality to it that really leaps out.
3: Yeah, I'm um, just, just in agreement
2: in, in this in this particular. But but like for the purposes of this particular scene, I feel like it works in context. It doesn't pay off down the road, but in the moment, I look at it and say, "Well, I see why he's telling her this story for you know for a couple of reasons."
0: Right. It almost has a a real real world or psychological or character-based logic or authenticity. But when you step back and look at this as a movie with setups and payoffs and, you know, from a screenwriting perspective, that's where the problems kind of come in. Like that it doesn't Mm -hmm. have any clear utility in advancing the plot or exploring themes or, you know, questioning perspectives of its characters through you know, the results of their actions or their decisions. That's kind of where it breaks down. But absolutely, like, it makes sense in the moment, like, from a real-world perspective that he might be expressing this. So, yeah. Uh, But it leads directly, and I mean directly, like, without a, barely a cut, into the funniest thing in the movie for me. (laughs) And one of the only laugh lines in the whole film where Albrecht says she thinks she read Jano's book, And the the, kind of the implication is, oh, well, did you like it? And she goes, the cover was really well made. And we hang on his frozen expression as he digests this review and then cut away. I just think it's such a kind of discordant beat in the movie. It's very surprising and easily overlooked. But like, even the more I watch the movie, the more I get a a kick out of that, that little beat, (laughs) you know, just kind of like, stepping on his ego.
2: <laughs> well, and especially if the point of this whole monologue was for him to kind of present his credentials for her and right. to try and to try and present himself as her equal to get slapped down like that is, is particularly embarrassing.
0: Yeah. I think I totally agree with you, Vic, like in, in your interpretation of that, that he is sort of puffing himself up for her and like his sort of, uh, He doesn't overplay it, but like that kind of frozen slack jawed disappointment as he registers what he, what she just said. And then you cut to the, the neighbor kid climbing over the wall. It's just very funny. (laughs) But yeah, so then the, the neighbor kid comes and knocks on the window and sees his friend sitting at the, at the table, kitchen table, his dead friend. And yeah, we, we talked about this earlier. The head very slowly creaks and turns and swivels towards, uh, the neighbor. And then we hard cut to Albrecht with photos that Carball took clearly and sent to her, um, from his, I guess, screen caps, printed screen caps. Um, you know, what we already saw, which is the naked man standing over Walter's bed. So Rich, yeah, earlier you were questioning whether, um, she got this photographic evidence, but she, she did.
1: I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely curious as to, to when and where, because the implication is that the night that he got the camera is the night that he was, uh, um, abducted. I don't know whatever it is you want to call it.
3: Yeah.
1: He opens the camera.
0: Yeah. He like opens it up out of the box.
1: Um, right before that sequence starts.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like one night. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I also wanted to, to step back. I actually, I, I mean, I, uh, I think all the points that you guys made about the the kid and the, the allowing the the dead kid to move is totally relevant. I will say for the record, I actually really like the shot of the, the 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 dead kid turning and looking at his friend. I found it horrifically creepy. Mm-hmm. I find the very the, the the very practical nature of that that corpse. To be, um, to just be very like refreshing, um, in a you know in a, in a genre that's so dominated with, with digital effects. You know this movie um, certainly is is also full of like some digital effects, albeit some effective ones. But like I love how real that kid feels and the way that he turns and kind of creaks and groans as he looks at the kid. I will see the. Again, speaking to the the unusual emotional state of people in this in this movie, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it, is the fact that that this kid, uh, his friend, had died. How how long ago? It's like it, four it was like a, days, four four days ago. And so his plan is to is to casually like romp around the backyard collecting the toys that he left there.
0: Well, that. It's- there's even a further point because the kid's bag with the toys ends up in the kitchen. So he was outside. The dead kid's head turned towards him. And by the way, Rich, I agree. I, I think it's really cool. You hear the creaking of the neck and all that. I really like it. It's just hard to reconcile with the idea that this thing is scampering up walls on all fours. But but yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And then off camera, someone again—like these are one of those one of those scenes that the movie skips over to its own convenience. Someone opened that sliding door. The bag ends up inside. So the question is, why would seeing the corpse? Why would the living child come inside?
1: Yeah, that didn't scare him enough to keep him away. Like he he walked inside, and then at that point, something happened that frightened him so badly that he that he that he dropped his bag and yeah. he ran off.
0: Yeah, we, we know that the neighbor boy eventually fled, terrified, yelling for his mom. But how did that play out? Like, what was the missing beat? Was he lured inside? Did the corpse open the door and grab him? Which maybe if it's scampering up and down the walls, maybe maybe that's totally like it creaks slowly for a second and then like lunges out agilely and opens the door and, you know, pulls him halfway through and he, you know, he loses his bag, but he manages to tear away. We we miss something here, but what it is is not apparent. It's not even strongly hinted at.
2: Well, let's can we talk even more broadly about this subplot with the neighbor kid? Because a lot of attention and time gets paid into this in an eighty seven minute movie. Hmm. And as far as I can tell, the the payoff is just to let Uh, Alicia know that Fuñez and Yano put the kid back in his grave. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's this
0: video that's filmed like the kid was not too terrified to perch on the wall and film them transporting his buddy's corpse to the freezer and out again or whatever. And
2: and to what end? Right? Like it's, again, in terms of the narrative, all we get out of it is Alicia hanging at the end of it which we don't even see her hang herself. And because she's not developed as a character in any way, it doesn't even really mean anything. Like it didn't, it didn't affect me emotionally when that happened. One of the notes that I have that I'll be interested to, to sort of address as this goes forward is as a, as much as the loss of that child is a huge narrative factor in this movie, which I think it, it, plainly is if you put this up against lake mungo as a juxtaposition like you see how just strangely they deal with it or even the uh, uh, i think we probably talked about it uh, as regards the orphanage in the same context like i have no emotional connection to alicia like her her suffering and her pain is not really depicted beyond anything other than smoking and digging up her child. (laughs) And that feels like a weakness in this film. And I'm not saying that the film should have, I'm not saying the film should have focused on her more, that this should have been her story, but that they depend on that loss and the, the sort of madness that it seems to drive her to, for a whole bunch of narrative points that don't land for me. I don't know. What what does that mean? How, How do you guys react to that?
0: I have a strong reaction to it. I completely understand what you're saying. Like it, it's undermining basic logic, which you need to buy the film. And that's important because if you don't understand like why characters are doing things, you can't be, as involved and forget that it's a movie and, you know, it It certainly removes some of even the, the scare value when you start to question, you know, like you start thinking, are these constructs, are they really behaving the way people would, I understand the house of cards there, but I will say this, each movie has a limited amount of focus or intent and concern and you have to allocate those resources. Now, this movie very clearly is not legitimately or deeply or passionately interested in a mother losing her child and what that's like and, and so on. This is a movie that is a thrill ride that is just trying to string together these various episodes that are are terrifying. And the plot, the connective tissue, and the characters, they're doing a, a good enough job of making them believable so that you don't check out and don't, you know, take the the horror seriously. But I think this movie absolutely is fudging a lot of those kinds of details because it just doesn't care about them and it honestly doesn't think the audience should care either. This is this is a roller coaster. Whereas Lake Mungo, and we do have a kind of a tendency to bring Lake Mungo into a lot of these podcasts and compare and contrast the movies to Lake Mungo, and it's gotten us into trouble because, you know, my belief is that Lake Mungo needs to care a hell of a lot more about being scary, and it doesn't. I th- I would say that Lake Mungo is too goddamn concerned to be a horror movie with grief and moving on and loss, and we'll talk about that. But yeah. – um, I just think that, again, it's an it's a 87-minute experience. This movie has to call, call its shots and, and have its own priorities. And, yeah, yeah, you're identifying what its priorities are. And are they absolutely perfect, like, to, to maximize its impact? No. But I understand why it's making the choices it's making.
2: I'm not saying this movie should focus more on Alicia. Like, this is not a movie right. about no. grief over losing a child. But at least Dick Halloran had to drop off the, the snowcat. What does this this subplot with the, the friend mm-hmm. leaving his books and then filming the thing and then showing the video to his mom and then the mom calling and calling and calling. And then Alicia finds out that they moved the kid and then she shows up and she has a conversation with Buñez and then she hangs herself. Like that's a huge swath of narrative in in a movie. Again, when you're talking about this part of the narrative is, is really like 60 minutes, 50 minutes. You know what I mean? Like it's – there's not a lot of time to tell this story and we spend a huge amount of time trying to track this story from a narrative perspective that just doesn't pay off for me. That's true. How many minutes are we just listening to voicemails about
3: this?
0: Yeah, like later on there there definitely is a lot of sort of obligation to go through like what what people are are leaving voicemails on Alicia's machine and you know I guess like there's sort of the element that she's another wild card in this whole situation and you know the idea of of bringing Scrutiny or outsiders into it creates like a level of complication. But I, I, I see your point. It, I, I keep coming back to the, the thought that just like maybe there was a scene or two cut that th- these are sort of vestigial things that now sort of lack a lack a payoff, but they're not so unnecessary that they would be removed from an already short movie. But I, I know I, I, I get it. Hope you enjoyed our seriously in-depth discussion of Aterados, a.k.a. Terrified. We'll be back next time to finish the dissection. Until then, be safe. You might want to take a look under the bed. Never know what you'll find looking back at you. Adios!